Hi, this is Armin Shimmerman, and this is the Shuttle Pod Show. My partner makes me put on a quirk episode to make her feel better when she's not feeling well. I thought you were going to say <laughs> something. I don't know where this was going to go. <laughs> uh, yes, I've seen that fiction. <laughs> you too? Yeah. yeah. Welcome to another episode of Shuttlepod Show. Today we have very special guest, Armin Shimmerman. We'll be answering your fan questions, doing some Star Trek trivia, finding ourselves on Connor's remote island, and much more. As always, our Patreon members get a full extended version of this. I'm Erica LaRose, but before we move on, we have a special message from Andrew Robinson. Like, subscribe, and join us on Patreon. Thanks, Andrew. That's great. And now for your hosts, Connor Trenier and Dominic Keating. Hey, hey guys. Hey. Hello. Hello. Nice to be back. How are you? Good. Nice How are see you? you? Very good. Yeah. Nice to see you. How's, uh, how's Wash pinch? doesn't look so good. Pinch doing okay? <laughs> he looks washed out, mate. Honestly. Sounds sweaty for the weather. <laughs> he doesn't like feta oh. bucks. <laughs> no, you've got to put him in some sunlight, mate. Oh. Uh, so we have been getting messages from uh, a tree specialist, someone who uh, has identified what he's struggling with. Uh, he's it, struggling to be a tree is what it is. <laughs> uh, he's got uh, a, a little bit of a, a mite. Uh, oh, has he? Yeah. And oh. So we've been <laughs> oh. we've been given the lesson uh, how to get rid of the mites and how to give him about a month to get healthy again. They're not catchy, are they? Uh, no, no. no and then no. otherwise we're going to go with plastic, right? We're gonna <laughs> go with plastic wash. Plastic wash. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to do that. We are not going to do. We'll that. We'll have to get a Tiffany Tiffany's painting of wash over here. <laughs> yeah. He might miraculously turn into a into an orchid overnight, <laughs> right? <Aww. laughs> Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, treks and trekkers, welcome back to the Shuttlepod Show. We are beyond thrilled to have with us today um, actor, director, author, activist, a bunch of other A letters that uh, we could say about Armin Shimmerman. Which and- also starts with an A. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we have an Armin. And uh, thank you so much Wait for coming on the show. I'm figuring it out. <laughs> God bless. Nice to have you here, bud. Um, you were wondering how we got you. Uh, yes. How did you get me here? <laughs> it, we, we have a seance on uh, on Fridays. Well, they called your flip phone. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So you still, I honestly, I lost mine snowboarding in Mammoth. Show me. Oh, I can't wait to see it. I mean, it is a decade ago now. Shut oh the front door. Wow. That's my phone. What so is- don't text me, you know, and, and, and uh, how have you lived? Easy. Very easy. No the way I did in my 20s and 30s and 40s. You're married, right? So you don't need to get laid. Yeah. So there's that. <laughs> I will answer that off, Kim. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I didn't write it. I figured that. I, uh, it took me a while to figure that one out. Unless you text, it's not happening, honey. Hmm? Oh, my gosh. Anyway, we're off the path. Yeah. 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 What, a, what a great start. Uh, what, so you were born in New Jersey. I was born in a small town, yes. Lakewood. Uh, Lakewood, New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, which is a couple of miles west of Asbury Park. I spent a lot of time as a boy in Asbury Park and on the beaches there, or the shores, we call it in New Jersey, mm-hmm. in the Pines, uh, which are which are notorious for for people who, who walk around barefooted, which I'm sure I did. It was a very small town, mm-hmm. um, and it was an incredibly good childhood, uh, but it was a very poor 
Right. Um, and your dad was a house painter, wasn't he? My dad was a house painter. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was seven. Oh, really? And my mother took on multiple jobs in order to support myself and my brother. And I didn't know how poor we were until I grew up. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing to me always that I am now sitting here considering where I started. Yeah. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I had a very rich but meager uh, childhood um, where I became interested in language, not in acting at all, but, but in um, small-time life that, that I became cosmopolitan is still a mystery. Uh, it's incredible how that, uh, you know, how the, it, it's instilled in someone just from birth, I think, and it comes out or it, it's brought out or it isn't. Um, yeah, I mean, my father was an immigrant. Um, my mother was the was the daughter of immigrants. Um, a, a lot of my f- my father's family were wiped out in the Holocaust. Um, my mother's family uh, escaped that somehow. But my father, I lost multiple aunts and uncles in the Holocaust. Were you raised oh. Jewish? Jewish? Or, yes, yeah, I was. You, I was raised temple? very Jewish. The expectation was that I would be a rabbi. No kidding. And um, I gave that up after. Uh, my bar mitzvah. Actually. I was going to say, I mean, uh, in Jewish families, at least one of them, much like Irish Catholics, someone's getting ordained. That's right. Or, That's right. or apparently going into the entertainment business. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Just the same thing I face. <laughs> Did Just you, like, which son's which? <laughs> Did you not know what you didn't have, as it were, no, growing up? No. I remember having a cardboard belt. Uh, I remember n- my shoes needed to be repaired constantly. Cardboard uh, my My... The kids I went to school with early on, uh, especially when I just moved from the farm because I grew up on a – I spent first seven years on a chicken farm. And so when I, we moved mm. into the small town, uh, my fellow schoolmates made fun of the way I looked. Uh, mm. My clothes were really poor. And, uh, and of course, uh, we were all about the same size then, but uh, they all grew up and I didn't. So. Wow. Um, That's and, tough, tough start, yeah. mate. And uh, you were 15 when you came out. So was it mum and the, and the mom, kids? Mom did a very heroic thing. Yeah. Very heroic thing, for which I'm enormously grateful. Um, my mother, who knew that her oldest son, I am the oldest, uh, needed to go to college, yeah. wanted to go to college, uh, but she couldn't afford college. Out of the question. We were living in New Jersey. Uh, Princeton was certainly out of the question. Rutgers was out of the question. Those were state colleges. Uh, every The New York schools, Connecticut schools, Pennsylvania, they were all too expensive. She found out that the UC system, that's the uh, University of California, uh, had a very inexpensive tuition. But to take advantage of that low tuition, you had to be a resident of California for two years. Right. So that sense, that so she uprooted so you all. And- she put us all in a Volkswagen bug. I don't know how she oh, did wow. it. She took everything that she had and all we had and crammed it into that bug. You drove across And country. drove by herself across the country um, and landed in Santa Monica. Um, and, uh, what was this? We, and, we, and I was started, I went to high school in Santa Monica. 1960-ish or? Yeah, 1965. Wow. So, and, so you could go to the UC and get good tuition. Yes. And, and it never occurred to anyone, certainly not to me and certainly not to my mother, that I would go anywhere else. We didn't know that you could be rejected from, mm. from a UC school. <laughs> but, of course, I wasn't. And, um, and I went to UCLA where uh, I was an English major and uh, learned about Shakespeare. Was and there you- any connection to LA or Santa Monica? Yes. Miami? My mother had an aunt 
that lived in Santa Monica, and we lived with that aunt for about, uh, I'd say, two months. And then my mother found a place uh, in West L.A. Uh, around Pico and Robertson, which was out of the Santa Monica High School uh, jurisdiction. But I so liked going to that high school that I snuck into into Santa Monica High School for two years. I, I would take the bus, and it would take me half an hour by the local transportation to go get to Santa Monica, and I would go to school, and then I would take the bus back. You're not registered. No. <laughs> the only registration they had was my aunt's, my my mother's aunt's house, and uh, that was the registration. And I must um, early on when my uh, English teacher convinced me to become an actor, um, he saw me one night after rehearsal sitting on the on the bus bench waiting to cast the bunch mm-hmm. bus, and uh, he said to me, uh, "Where are you going? I'll drive you home." And everything in me went, no, no, I can't tell him that because he'll know I live eight, 10 miles, 12 miles away from school. Um, and I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to my grandmother's house. And he said, where does your grandmother live? And I told him where we lived. He drove me there. And uh, on subsequent nights, he saw me on the, on the, and he knew what was happening after a while. He said, do you need a ride to your grandmother's house? <laughs> yes. So nice. did you know you were an actor then? <laughs> uh, he cast me in Leeds, so he must have known I had the potential to be an actor, and uh, I was also thinking the, the quick thinking. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I was in that that first uh, encounter. I was the lead in the Crucible for him. I was playing John Proctor, right. and then I subsequently went on to play Claudius for him and um, Mr. Antrobus in uh, Skin remember. of Our Teeth. Skin of Our Teeth. Of our teeth. Yeah. Well done, sir. Yes, well done. <laughs> One point to us. That's right. <laughs> uh, it must have been kind of. Um, well, one, I imagine a bit of a shock moving from small town New Jersey it to was. The, the, the wide open ocean of Santa Monica. What was Santa Monica like back then? Was it, was it a slightly believed? Everybody went surfing. Every, everybody, the soon as the three o'clock bell rang, everybody took their right. boards and, or they put on their suits and they all went to the beach. The beach was literally across the street from the right. high school. Mm. And so uh, everybody went to the ocean. Uh, I was part of the school band, so I was playing my trumpet for a while and uh, my teacher, Mr. Jellison, uh, cast me in the crucible, and uh, I was sort of maneuvering between those two areas uh, and eventually had to choose. They said to me, you have to choose. Uh, either you picked a theater or you picked the band, and I chose the theater. All right. And you're about 16 or something now? 16, 17 yeah. at this point, yeah. Was it just um, a, a general interest in trying out the the drama department or was there no girls it was girls yeah. um, that's why i became <laughs> exactly <laughs> I don't know where ahead of you. yeah uh, we uh there were i you know i got to be around more girls yeah. and, and actually got to interrelate with girls in, in the theater department then i couldn't surf yeah <laughs> and then the trumpet to, to, you know section that i played in was all guys so this was a much better yes much absolutely better. Uh, did you take to it uh, immediately, fish to water? Like, yeah, this is, this uh, I think I every like. actor uh, has had that moment where they realize this is something special. And I remember being in a performance of The Crucible where I came off stage. I'd been on stage for about 40 minutes and came off stage and could not remember what the last 40 minutes really? were about. I only know that I was so involved in the character that everything else had faded away and so when i came back to being armin i couldn't remember what i what i had done i i knew i'd been john proctor for 40 minutes ultimately completely 
John Proctor. It's full consciousness, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And uh, full being. And, and that ability to get out of oneself, that ability to um, uh, matriculate into somebody else was so delicious, so wonderfully intoxicating. Mm. It became my drug of choice for the rest of my did life. Did you sense the audience too, that you had them there in the palm, as it were, or did you feel that power? Or I did. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great That's play and a great mix. part. And and um, and when you get the opportunity to play those kinds of roles where it's total silence, mm. every stage actor knows mm. there's two wonderful sounds, the sound of laughter when you get a joke <laughs> and the sound of complete silence mm-hmm. from the audience because they're watching every move you're making. They're so involved in what you're doing. And that that is the pinnacle of what every actor tries to achieve. Now, there are other things to look for, other things to, to achieve when you're on stage, but that ego gratification is one of them. Yeah, not bumping yeah. into the furniture is the other one. That's right. <laughs> and die behind the couch if you're going to die on stage. <laughs> sit, sit whenever possible. That's what those are Gilgo's pieces of words of advice, weren't they? <laughs> Darling, sit whenever you can. <laughs> and it sounds like I you... try not to do that because then I really get short. Uh, but it sounds like you had in your um, uh, drama teacher a, um, a, real, a wonderful man. Yeah, who, who guided you and put you in roles that were going to challenge you. Yes, it. You need someone like that to convince you that you can do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did convince me of that. And, and not only was my, he my drama teacher, he was also my English teacher. And so he instilled in me a great love for literature as well. Uh, uh, Mr. Jellison was one of those great men that every one of us has, or w- women for that matter, um, that instills in you to try to achieve your potential. And a ride home. And a ride home. At a good hour. At a good hour. Was he a part of you deciding to go to UCLA? No. No. No, my next important teacher uh, was a UCLA professor who was enormously instrumental in not only my life, uh, I can tell this story, I think, but also in Patrick Stewart's life. Oh, how, what's that connect? Okay. So um, I went to UCLA and and my Shakespeare teacher was David Rhodes, who uh, who I had five, six, seven classes with. And I was in my senior year. I needed to take a final exam for my, for my last class with him. And I had an audition for a prestigious Shakespeare festival in San Diego called the San Diego Old Globe. And I really wanted to do that. But it turned out my audition for the Globe was also at the same time, same hour, that I needed to take this final exam for Dr. Rhodes. Excuse me. Can't call him Dr. Rhodes. David Rhodes. Um, he asked me not to call him Dr. Mm-hmm. Rhodes. Um, and, and I was perplexed. I really wanted this audition, but there was a conflict. And I girded my loins, and I went to David and said, um, is there any way that I can take the test another time? And David had seen me perform half a dozen, dozen plays in, at UCLA and had been a dramaturge in one of the plays. And he very nicely said, you're an actor and I am going to let you do this. Oh, bless him. And the outcome was, I believe there were about 800 applicants for eight positions at the Globe. And I was lucky enough to be one of those eight people. 
and the rest is history. That's a formative moment, well, that, isn't it, when you get picked out of a crowd like that. But I wouldn't yeah. have had the opportunity. I wouldn't have no, been I mean, picked out if, if my professor hadn't. And we yeah. came back. I had to, he came back and gave me the test. I was the only person in the room. Mm-hmm. And he took an hour to let me take the test. Awesome. He didn't have to do that. Right. He was just kind enough to do that. And for that, I'm enormously grateful. Now, let's skip ahead to Patrick Stewart. <laughs> okay. Uh, David um, had some money uh, from his family. And what he used to do for years was invite English actors over to UCLA to work with students in various capab- uh, capacities. One such year, he invited Patrick to, to do something. And Bob Justman, who I know you know was one of the producers of Next Generation and of, of the original Star Trek as well, I don't know why, saw Patrick in a classroom situation. And he came back to Roddenberry and said, I think I found our captain. No, I'm kidding. And uh, They were looking at that time. That was the time they were looking. Yeah, that's when they were looking for oh. a card. And Patrick got cast. And as I understand it, for six months, Patrick lived in David's house uh, while they were shooting the, uh, the first uh, half well, a year well. of the next generation. And Patrick was kind of a workaday British He was a well-respected, uh, jobbing, you know, actor at the Nash, the National. Mm. Uh Rode his Norton to work. He was a five hundred dollar, five hundred pound a week, at, you know, and got to play Polonius maybe and Shylock and, sh- and a couple of you know good part. But other than that, he did some spear holding too. Yeah, right. Yeah, but he was. Uh, I saw him at, the, at that time in the eighties, in the early eighties. He was, you know, he was in those casts. Right. But you know, wasn't aspiring to play anything more than yeah. yeah. I first saw him um, in graduate school when he was a part of the cast of the John Bartlett. Barton, Barton. Barton, John Barton, uh, the Shakespeare, the mm, brilliant, yeah. brilliant, brilliant. Yes, brilliant. If, if no one has ever seen it, if you're interested in Shakespeare at all, watch John Barton on YouTube, the, uh, Mastering Shakespeare. It's mm. called. And look at his sweater. <laughs> yes, look at his sweater. Yes. What's up with the sweater? <laughs> it's just it's, every, it's huge and everywhere. It's and uh, professorial. It's very yeah, professorial. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. fuzzy and furry. Scream and, and, Shakespeare. And, and, yeah. and John Barton, uh, without doubt, I think everybody will will say this, and he's just recently passed away. Uh, John Barton was the absolute expert on Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Just knew, just knew more about Shakespeare and how to perform it than anybody more else. More than McKellen. Say taught McKellen. And taught McKellen is part of, is one of the young men in mastering Shakespeare. When you see the TV show, McKellen, a very young McKellen, a very young right. Patrick Stewart, a very young um, one David uh, David Suchet, David Suchet, right. wonderful actors who are who are in their twenties and thirties when yeah. this TV show was shot. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's like Sesame Street, but for, <laughs> but for, for, for nerdy theater, Shakespeare yeah. people. That's <laughs> me. I'm a nerdy Shakespeare <laughs> You know, it's also true that the old globe has had, there's a lot of Star Trek connection there too. I think Jeffrey Combs did the same thing. That's right. He, yes. He went down after he was done at the University of Washington's program. And I, didn't, didn't Andrew, didn't Andy say did that he he'd say also. Where is it located? Is it down? It's, San in, Diego? it's, it's in the park in San Diego. San it's in Diego, yeah. Park. Right. And it's a, it was a breeding ground. For some wonderful actors, it also for years had uh, Jack O'Brien uh, mm. as the artistic director, who is one of Broadway's premier directors, and brought a lot of shows from San Diego to Broadway. How long did he live down there? Did I, at, at, just a summer. Just a summer. Um, and uh, it was a very influential summer. 
because um, I thought that I would spend the rest of my life in San Diego doing Shakespeare at the Globe. There was a man, a wonderful actor named John McMurtry, who was my role model. I thought, if I can be John McMurtry and spend spend all this time in the Globe, I've died and gone to heaven. And while I was there, there were a lot of New York actors. And they all said to me, you need to go to New York. You need, you need to go to New York. I said, no, I'm going to live here in San Diego and, and work here it's for pretty. the rest of my life. <laughs> Something terrible happened that was wonderful. Funny how that happens. Yeah. yeah it, happened? I, we all have these stories. This is mine. Yeah. I was understudying a part, uh, and I can't remember the actor's name, and I, forgive me if he's still around. Forgive me if, that I don't remember your name. But um, he got a TV pilot towards the end of the season. And... Uh, the artistic director said to me, we've seen your work. Usually we would get another equity actor, professional actor, to replace the actor that's leaving. But we like your work so much, we're going to put you in that part, for which I was ecstatic. Um, what was it? Uh, I was going to play Sir Hugh in uh, Merry Wives, um, and there were two other parts I was going to play, but Sir Hugh specifically. And um, I was, we were doing Richard III in that festival, that season. I had a costume change. And this, I've been doing this part now for three months. I went up to my dressing room, which was the, uh, the apprentice dressing room, which was all the way in the back. And I got out of my clothes to make the change, the costume change. And while I'm, I've, and one of the pieces of the costume were, were, were hanging together by a thread. And, I, and I'd been so careful for a month and a half about not tearing this one thread. So I got out and thought, I never have to get in this costume again because I'm moving on to other parts tomorrow, the next day. So I took the costume off. And I was all alone in the, in the room. And I burst the thread. I jumped up and down on it like a mad bumble <laughs> just never have to worry about this piece of again. <laughs> and as I'm doing that on the monitor, I hear some actors doing a scene that I'm supposed to be yeah. in in that costume. Oh no. Right then and there. And, oh, yeah, God. right then and there. Have and I am miles away from the stage. <laughs> And I, and I can't get back. I've just torn this thing to tatters. So I can't get back in it. And I don't, and I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Heart pounding. Yes, heart pounding. Oh my God. Boom, boom, boom. What the do I do? And, and, uh, I, I, I scramble. I put on my other costume. I think I'll run down in this. And, um, and by the time I got to the stage, the scene was over. And the actors came off and gave me, you know, the fish eye. Uh, Where the, were you? And uh, I had nothing I could say. They danced, I no though. Dance. They managed to have it, yeah. 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 And, and, and the, that afternoon, the artistic director, who was not, uh, who was Craig Knoll, he called me into his office, and he said, um, if we didn't need you <gasps> oh. to take over these three roles, I would fire your ass today. Because I was, I was the apprentice. I was a low man on the totem. Um, to which you replied, "Will you need me?" Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had said. I wish I had the grace to say that. I wish I had Too said that. Need I- me. 
But but I walked out of the room knowing full well I would never work in this theater. Oh, And so I decided maybe these guys are right. Maybe I should go to New York. I once had to do a scene with a a whole scene about a knife in a prison setup. And I went to the props table to get the knife to go on. Knife's not there. No knife. Nothing looks like a knife. There's no knife. I did a whole scene about having a knife with no knife. <laughs> did you hold it? Did what you? did you do? What did you do? I, it was talking about the fact that I had it secreted on my person. Yeah. And the two other actors, who was one was my cellmate and the other was the guard, who I was meant to put the knife to his throat was, was just looking at me like. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you, I have a knife. <laughs> what are you going to do now? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I've got a knife. I'm sure if we were talking, because we were talking in London jargon, because it was an Indian uh, guard cell guy. <laughs> And it was honestly one of the worst moments of my life. Yes, pound, it's pound, pounding. pound. So I moved to New York. You think you're going to be a theatre actor forever, and, yeah. then, and so, then what happens? So I moved to New York, and again, God's fates are incredibly kind to me. I am the luckiest person you will ever meet. I have been lucky all my life, enormously lucky. I go to New York, um, and uh, within about six or seven months, um, I have an audition for the public theater, which is the Joe Papp Theater. And uh, I won't tell that story. Uh, I'll move oh, ahead. Yeah. I'll move ahead. I'm uh, intrigued. Oh, no. <laughs> um, all right. All right. Okay. Um, how much you time do you have, Daisy? <laughs> all the so, time in the world. So I, I, okay, so, so I brought in to do what's called a general audition. They just want to know who you are and, and what can you, you – know, let's see what you do. So I'm brought in – to audition for the public theater. They tell me you need a classical scene and you need a modern mm. speech, a modern, not a scene, you need a, a classical speech and a modern speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point in time, I have mastered one of uh, Richard of Gloucester's uh, speeches from Henry VI, part three. And... Uh, this is my lord. <laughs> uh, 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 I'll hew my way out with a bloody axe. All right. And uh, so I have that prepared. And I have a, another piece from Saroy and Hello out there that I'm going to do as my modern piece. And I'm running through the lines as one does, getting ready for the audition. I have not ever met the casting director. Now, the Richard piece, Richard Gloucester, is, of course, a hunchback. And, um, and I, do, uh, I hunch up my shoulder and, uh, and I limp when I do it. And uh, I'm going over the lines. The casting director comes out and says, Armin, how nice to meet you. Um, Gugliotti, I can't remember his first name. Uh, I'm something Gugliotti. And the man has a hunchback and limps. Now I'm <laughs> 25 years old. We should stop. No, you don't, don't even, no, we shouldn't. Uh, and I look at him and I think. Caught you unawares. Uh, <laughs> Is he taking I can't do this. I can't do this. I, I can't. I can't. Are you- Dude. Yeah. Yeah, dude, <laughs> and, and that's not fair <laughs> right. and i i walk in and he says what are you going to do for us i said um i'm i'm, uh, I'm going to do claudius from hamlet uh, so i do claudius and he's, he's pleased with it did you have it backed up i mean you were i, I had done claudius in high school from no. mr uh from mr jealous but it's been a while yes it's been a while but i still had the lines and uh so I do Claudius. And then he says to me, 
do you have anything else classical you can do? <laughs> and I think, I can't do the Richard. <laughs> He's I seen do, you. I can't, <laughs> I can't do the Richard. So I do Puck. Oh. That's, that's easy for me, uh, especially at 25. Um, and I do Puck. And he's impressed by that. And he says, do you have anything else? And I think, fuck it. I can't do the rest of And I, there was something else. I did something else. I can't remember. You didn't and, do it. I, you, I, I never did the never Richard. Did and, and, and he never asked me for the modern piece either. Now, fast forward. This is where this is that I was going to jump that. Fast forward to two, three months later. They're auditioning Three Penny Opera for uh, Lincoln Center, which public, the public theater was the producer of. And um, for those who don't know, if you're auditioning for a Broadway show, it really helps if you have Broadway credits. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to hire you unless you have Broadway credits. So this was a Broadway show. And... Um, this show, Three Penny, was being directed by a very avant-garde director named Richard Foreman. And Richard Foreman, for the parts that I was being considered for, didn't want anybody with any credits. Oh. He just wanted people with very unique faces. Hmm. And because Mr. Gugliotti uh, remembered my audition, and because he remembered I had a very distinctively different face, he brought me in. And um, I auditioned for Richard once, and then they brought me in again to audition for Joe Papp. And um, so within nine months of arriving in New York, I was doing a Broadway show. Wow. Which lasted, which was a huge success. Uh, For those of you who are familiar with Broadway, or even for some of you who aren't, you all probably have seen the poster of Raul Julia uh, as Mac the Knife. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the production. That was it. Yeah. That was a big step. It wow. was a huge, huge success. And I was trapped in that for a, a year and a half. Trapped because because I was playing a hunchback. Um, <laughs> and and after a while, my shoulder and my and my limp got very tiring after eight shows a week. Wow. So. Do you guys know the, the Michael Gambon story when he auditioned for uh, uh, Larry Olivier's um, uh, RSC mm. first thing at the... Uh, he goes up in front of Olivier and the lady says, so what have you, what have you got for me? <laughs> and uh, he said, um, Richard III. And Larry had just had massive success playing the part. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Which part? <laughs> well, well, the king, Richard. The king. <laughs> and he, anyway, so he gets into it. He thinks he's going to pull a move and there's a piece of sort of pillar prop on the thing and he's Twizzles round to go into the thing, and his ring catches on oh, the nail, oh, oh, oh. and suddenly he's dripping blood. <laughs> anyway, and that's when Olivia goes, and Olivia says, "How do you do that? I yeah. want to learn how to do that." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's the blood? So you finish up on the this this wonderful yes, know, and then I, I, then I had three more. Broadway. I had two two more Broadway shows. One that didn't quite make it to Broadway. Uh, uh, so I did Broadway shows right after each other, one after another, after okay. another, after another. And the last Broadway show I did uh, uh, was um, one with Richard Rogers. Wow. So yeah. how does telly come around? How does the camera get in? How did I get seduced by the dark side of the force? Can we say that here? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> Anything you want. Um, my agent called and said, uh, there's an audition for a TV pilot. And I auditioned. Not, I heard Andy say this, and I, and I want to echo it as well. 
I only thought of myself as a theater actor. I never thought that I would do film or TV. I, I, I looked at myself in the mirror and went, they don't cast people that look like me. If, if you weren't somewhat of a handsome leading person, whether male or female, you didn't see a, a lot of people that looked like me on mm. TV and, and film. I mean, there were some, but very few. And uh, so I never thought that that would be my career. But I had this audition and uh, went back. I did it in my lunch hour and went back to the play. And about 10 days later, uh, the agent called and said, they want to see you in Los Angeles. Oh, do you remember what it was for? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was for a pilot called Bulba that never went. Um, and um, I met one of my dearest friends, who I think you both know, uh, who worked on Star Trek quite a bit, Greg Itson. Oh, right. Gregory Itson. Right. Um, Gregory and I did this pilot together and, and some other people as well. And um, What sort of show was it? It was a comedy about State Department <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, after we, forever. Like, <laughs> yeah. after we after we shot the the pilot, it was just the time that um, I believe was it the Iranians or the Iraqis. I should know this. Um, captured the people during the Carter administration. Yeah. Iran, Iran, yeah. And uh, the network decided it uh, portraying State Department people as fuck ups at this moment mm-hmm. in time was not a good idea. Yeah. Right. So the, the show was canceled. But they paid me, uh, what? They paid me, I think, $7,000 to do the pilot. And um, I had never seen that money. Uh-huh. Even with all my Broadway shows, that, that was astronomically right. more than uh-huh. I made on, on Broadway. And I went back to uh, my girlfriend, Kitty Swank, and said, uh, I think we should move to. <laughs> we, we, we should try it anyway. We should give it a six-month try. Remembering that I'm from L.A. So right. it's, not, it's not that hard for me to move to L.A. I've got family back there. And um, Kitty was an actress too. Oh, yeah. it's always an yeah. actress. Always, yeah, yeah. There's no was to it. <laughs> right. Isn't right. it? My wife is incredible. She, she's, uh, I hope I'll get an opportunity to tell you all the incredible things that my wife has done, not only as an actress, but as an activist, as a as a, as a a union official, as a producer, as one of your producers, mm-hmm. um, um, lots of things. Anyway, yes, but certainly mm-hmm. the primary thing that she is and thinks of herself as an actress. Was she a New Yorker? Uh, through and yes, through? we met. We met. Um, we met in a bar uh, uh, in the in the last Broadway show I had done, which had just closed. It was called "I Remember Mama." Uh, the lead, leading man was a man named George Hearn, who right. uh, was very famous Broadway. Is yeah. Still alive, I hope. I think he's still alive. Georgia, you're still alive, right? <laughs> um, and um, he introduced me to Kitty in a bar. So, yes, uh, she's an actress. And um, How did she I, take the news about coming to L.A. then? She, she didn't like it. No. She hated it. Mm. She hated it. And, and, and it was the worst year and a half of our marriage because she, she did not want to be here. You'd how been together you, for how long? We'd been together for about two years. Now, we didn't move right after... I did it. I took the 7000 that I made on Bulba and bought her an engagement ring. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were engaged for, I don't know, about six months, and then we got married. <clears throat> but after we got married, we, 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 I convinced her to do this. And, f- and for the year and a half, the first year and a half, um, Kitty uh, was not happy about being there and kept begging me to move back. But again, luck had turned my way. When I first got to L.A., I did um, Hill Street Blues. Uh-huh. 
which was a very popular show. Yeah, oh, huge. Yeah. And I thought, well, if I can get Hill Street Blues in, in the first month and a half that I'm here, uh, this TV stuff should be easy. Yeah. <laughs> it's a walk in the park. Yeah, except for and the next year and a half, there wasn't yeah. any other work. Yeah. You had also, you'd established yourself as a New York actor. You, you, I think you've told me that you, you lived in that, well, it's the actor's apartment building. What's yeah. it called? Manhattan Plaza. Manhattan Plaza. Right. And I used to walk by there and be like, Someday. <laughs> Somebody has to die, though. I mean, it, it's almost impossible right. to get yeah. in. Yeah. yeah. In fact, um, once again, luck. Luck. I am the luckiest person <laughs> I know. Um, when, when it was empty, when there was no one in it, when they were taking the first applicants, uh, I, I, we applied. It wasn't Kitty at that time. It was another lady, um, Rita Litton. And we applied for an apartment in Manhattan Plaza, which was... Very ritzy for, for us, for starving actors. It was very ritzy. Yeah. It was it's rent controlled, I take it. And yes, yeah, it's rent controlled. Yeah, right. And uh, we applied, and it was filling up. And Rita called me. I was in Detroit shooting a commercial. And Rita called and said, uh, they've just called me. Uh, and I had an interview with Manhattan Plaza, and they found an apartment for us. But, of course, they wanted to talk to you as well. And I said, well, tell them that when I come back from Detroit, uh, which was in a couple of days, I'll be glad to do that. So, uh, and did you tell them? The one thing we told they asked, what is it that you want to have? We want to have a balcony. That was important to us. We wanted to have a balcony. <laughs> Most of the apartments in Manhattan Plaza do have a balcony. Mm-hmm. Most of them do. And um, so I came back from Detroit. And they called me in. I had my interview. And it went well. And I said, is there any way? They said, well, we found you an apartment on the on the sixth floor of the 10th Avenue building. There's a 9th Avenue building and there's a 10th Avenue building. And I said, does it have a balcony? He said, oh, yes, absolutely it has a balcony. I said, well, that's all that matters. And I look forward to, to moving it. Can you ride a horse? Yes. yes. Ride a horse. yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, can I see the apartment? Before we move in, they said, no, construction's going on. It, it, for insurance matters, we can't allow anybody to go into the 10th Avenue building. And I walked out of the office, and the 10th Avenue building was right there. There was a plaza, and, and it was right there. And I thought, it's on the sixth floor. I can hmm. walk up. There are no elevators. I can walk up six floors and, and see what the apartment looks like. So I walked up the six floors, found the apartment looked around it. It was terrific. It was great. And just before I left, I went, and, and where's the, where's the balcony? And, and there was no balcony because the balcony started on the seventh floor and went to, I think it's the 45th floor. There are 45 floors in each building. And, um, but there was no balcony from the sixth floor down, sixth, fifth, fourth, no balconies. It's not high so, enough to kill yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could jump from there and survive. You'd land on a Port Authority bus, but you'd be fine. You'd be fine. Um, and uh, I went, I called up Rita and said, there's no balcony. She said, they told us there was a balcony. I said, I know, I know. And I, I, I went back into the office and said, there's no balcony in the apartment you told us we were going to get. And they assured me, oh, absolutely, there's a balcony. And I said, no, no, there isn't. And, um, and we went back and forth, and they eventually asked me, how, did you, how do you know that there's no <laughs> yeah. balcony? And I went, I counted it up from the street. I just, there aren't any. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So um, here's where the luck comes in. The, the Ninth Avenue building is a better building than the 10th Avenue building. 
they had now gotten, they had filled up all the apartments. And they came back to Rita and I, and they said, okay, there's no, but we, we'll make it up to you. We'll give you a bigger apartment, the, the show apartment, on the 23rd floor of the 9th Avenue building, and we can move you into there. We, we said yes, and, um, and, and we had a much better apartment. Because uh, I had lied to them. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the Irish. That's, yeah. I mean, We're not. oh my God. And, and, I, and I, <clears throat> I could go on and on and on for days about how luck has, I, I've always been lucky and done the right thing, even though it made no sense whatsoever to do it. I have done the right thing at the right time and the gods have smiled on me. That's it, isn't it? It's the right thing. How long right did you time. live there? Long time. Um, I lived there for about... Less than a year, Rita and I, uh, I actually stayed three months longer than I should have because Rita and I were breaking up. And, um, but there, I could not find another place comparable to this apartment no. in Manhattan. And that's a Seinfeld episode right there. Yeah. Yeah. Stay together. That's exactly. That's what we did. And I stayed, I stayed for three months that's and then terrible. eventually moved out because, because the relationship was, was ending. We're still good friends. Uh, Rita nice. was over a couple months ago to the hmm. visit. Um, and, um, and so I moved on, but, but I, I have so many stories where luck was, it was just luck. Star Trek is, is luck. Well, let's get to Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's so, talk about the luck uh, of Star uh, Trek. You, you played a Ferengi in the, the next gen, didn't you? Yes. Unfortunately. A couple of times. Yeah, uh, a couple of times. And they were a different breed of Ferengi back then. Oh, yeah, yes. Electric whip. Uh, what? Yeah. With a, with a blue whip. Yes, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, now a hologram episode. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll say right here. I've said it many times. I'll say it again. I apologize for that first um, episode. Uh, that first, not the episode, my performance. Uh, uh, Letek was the character. The Frankie's name was Letek, and it was nothing like what I was told uh, they wanted. And I'm the one that screwed up. I, it's all my fault. I take responsibility. The we Ferengi were. originally were meant to be the new Klingons. Right. We yeah, were just, supposed to be threatening. Right. We were supposed to be a menace to the Federation. We were supposed to be uh, everything that the Klingons were and more. Mm. Um, and I had the largest Ferengi part on that episode. There were four Ferengi, I believe. And um, Did you play it for laughs? <laughs> I thought I played it seriously, but I failed miserably. <laughs> I failed miserably. And and in fact, putting all these stories together, if you look at that episode, Letek, who I played, has a hunchback and a limp. No way. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's true. You got it in. Got it in. Uh, uh, and that added to how bad that performance was. And I am, I am, I am so... Enormously embarrassed by that performance. And all of Quark, my whole agenda for seven years was to eradicate that next generation performance. Interesting. Did you feel as though you were, had you acted with any kind of prosthetic and makeup like that before? No. 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 Was there an element of that in it? No. Just bad acting. Oh. Oh. Bad choices, bad acting. 
stupid behavior. What about the director? I mean, not... not he had not, something not, to do not, with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he allowed us to do the... I mean, Rick really. let that part that uh, go. I think it was... He saw the dailies and uh, just let it go? It was, it's actually before Rick. Yeah, that oh, was, was the first it? season. Yeah. yeah, Rick was there, but but Roddenberry was, oh, was the Oh, well, that explains a little bit. And, and Roddenberry was very sick. So what they allowed this director to do with us and what we did... Was criminal. Criminal. <laughs> and so we became oh, a comic race, mm. for which I'm enormously good. Luck, again. Yeah. So we became a comic race. And as, as Rick once history. said to me, uh, right after I, I auditioned for Quark, he said, we wrote this role for you. So, um, and I was the first person cast on, on, oh, on Deep Space Nine. Oh, so it, because it turned out badly and because I was a bad actor, they thought of me for Quark. <laughs> and, and I spent seven years trying to uh, rehabilitate the Ferengi. Well, I imagine your audition process was probably pretty simple then. What do you mean? For Quark. Well, How many times did you read for it? Oh, I, I read four times. Oh, you did? Yeah. Um, I, read, I, I read once early on. I think I must have been one of the first people uh, they brought in. And then, and you guys will understand this, there was not any word for a month and a half. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, no well, it's word. grueling, isn't it? And, and I assumed it was over. Yeah. yeah. My experience, limited as it was, was um, you get a week at the mm-hmm. most. Yeah, really. Not a month and a half. Yeah, that gives you was a week, right? I yeah. Mean, uh, but they did. I, and the agent was trying to get feedback. No feedback. Nothing. So I assumed it was over. Uh, and then a month and a half later, they said, okay, you've got a call back. And uh, I went in and read. And I noticed another actor they're going to read for the same part, who I recognized had played a Ferengi on Next Generation. And uh, I went in before him, and I read. And then he followed me in. <laughs> he didn't know me. I didn't know him, except I recognized him. And then I waited for him to come out. And... Uh, we started talking. We sat on the steps of Paramount for about two hours. And that is the beginning of my enormous friendship and love affair with Max Grudenti. No kidding. No, no way. Really? Yeah. Oh. So do you, know, do you know who he was auditioning for? Was yes, it for, for Rom? It was for Quark, too. Yeah, right? there, was, there, right. there was no Rom. There was there a was Rom, no but Rom. not in, in, in our pilot script. All it says of that, of that character is he says, there's no name. He says, right. I'm Quark's brother. Right. And we actually, during our, our time together on the steps of Paramount, we talked about that other role. Mm. We talked about, well, if we don't get the Quark role, maybe we can play the brother role, which certainly had to go somewhere. It was the brother of, the, of one of the series regulars. Right. So we talked about that back and forth. Mm. And I asked Max, how did you approach it? The actor's talking. Yeah. How, how did you approach You didn't hear to the door. That's yeah. what I, I just, <laughs> I, I just go stand by the door. <laughs> and he said, well, Ferengi, you're a comic. I, I, I played it. I took a comic approach. And he said, isn't that the way you did it? Cause, because he told me then, he said, all the Ferengi that followed you all had to see your episode of mm-hmm. Outpost to see how Ferengi acted. So we were all given that, that episode. And so all the Ferengi on TNG – all followed in, in our footsteps, last outpost. And you're like, oh, no. And they were, you know, horrible <laughs> footsteps. Um, and he said, how did you uh, look at it? I said, I played it dramatically. I, I, I took it as a dramatic approach. And, um, and I have found, as a comic actor, and that's mostly what I do, that the only way to play comic 
mm. characters is to approach them dramatically. Yeah, it's mm. a serious business, is it? Well, that's business. what they say. Yeah. You, you just know, do, do something slightly. Did you have a three-line bio that described him in any fashion that you... No. Were, no, there was no sort no. of out... I had played a Ferengi, and not only once, but twice. Uh, and so I was familiar with the species, but I was also dead set about changing the way this <laughs> <is>. <laughs> it's your legacy. Yeah, it was. It was my Do legacy. Do you remember those those first scenes that you auditioned with? Were they? Were they I did all they? the scenes in the show, all right. of them. All of, I did all of them, and got a laugh uh, in the final audition for the suits, which I'm sure you guys went through as well. But with the 34 suits sitting there, yeah, um, that's a big day, isn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I I had a scene with Kira, and I and I and I said to him, um. I love a woman in uniform <laughs> and, and got a laugh from the 34 suits. I thought, well, that's good. <laughs> I wanna, I, let me ask you about, so how, so you don't have any of the gear on, you know, how no, do you, I had the voice. You, how do you suggest Quark then? I, I it, had the it, voice. Barefaced as it were. I, I did the voice. That was, you went with the, yeah, yes. this is a voice I used as a Frankie. Uh, <laughs> and it's true. You work with your females, arm them and force them to wear clothing. One of the stupid <laughs> things that I did in that original episode. Anyway, that's the voice I used. And that's, after that episode, Berman called me in, as he called in all of us uh, at the end of the first episode. And he said, Armin, lose the voice. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't recognize no, the voice no, from no. this one. And, and if you watch that first episode of Deep Space Nine, Quark talks like this. <laughs> and in the second episode, he talks like this. Right. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> Look, that's, we need the Ricks of this world. You know, I mean, God knows, John talks about the squawking. You know, he squawked as, jo- as, as Billing, as oh, yeah? Dr. Flux. In the, I was there. We, we were got cast together. And he's in the audition. I've got my ear to the... And he's... <laughs> And I'm like, fucking shit. Yeah. 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 He got the job that way. Yeah. Yeah. When he got the job that way, he went to, he went to set the first scene for, and I happened to be, and he's with uh, 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 Jim Conway, who finally came around from Video Village and went, are you shitting me? <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. But they let it go all the way. But yeah, actors want to, we do, we, we need direction in that respect. Yeah, we need to be told, no, it's too much. Yeah, that's it's too, too much. much. It's too much. <laughs> we were talking before we came on about, uh, about too much. You like, are you direct? And you, yes. you'd, you'd, I mean, I've heard this many times. You'd rather see an actor with too much and pare it down. Pare it down, pare yeah. it down. Um, and I, I, I've not learned to do that as an actor. I wish I had. As a director, I am very... Specific about that. Less. I want to see less. Less. Yeah. Less. Mm-hmm. However, I, I do the opposite as an actor. I tend to do a little bit more. But but I, I have learned to come down a little. Certainly, especially in front of a camera. Yeah, yeah, you have to. You have yeah. to. You have to talk like this in mm. front of the camera, or, or the performance really is too yeah. much. Although what Jack Lemmon was doing something, I forget. And Billy Wilder. It was yeah. uh, some like it hot. Is that what it is? Yeah, he was, he if was I like, do anything less, I won't be doing anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just be. Just what was be. the cheese? Wait I till mean. you see my Felix. He'll <laughs> 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 be brain dead. That's right. <laughs> hey, it's your line. We should, we're we're going to read the odd couple together. On oh, oh, oh great. Yeah, so that'll, that'll be fun. So tell me, how many days? 10 days, 12 days, Oof. something like that. But, but I learned to talk to this from the show. That I did the four up, Star Trek, <laughs> which is called Beauty and the Beast. I learned this from Ron Perlman. Mm. Ron Perlman, who was in case to makeup as well, she just never talked any louder than this. Right. And it was a fascinating performance. And we used to laugh at him. We used to say, Ron, we can't hear our cues. Yeah, yeah. No <laughs> but, but he stayed with this. And I went, yeah. oh, I guess that's how. And I was, this is, this was sort of the first major job I had after leaving New York. 
And I went, oh, that's how you work on camera. You talk like that. Mm -hmm. I never did that as Quark, but, but, but this is, this is actually the, the better way to approach camera work. He's a sweetheart, Ron, isn't he? I did yes, Sons of Anarchy with him. He's a real lovely. Uh, I just, I'm absolutely, I can't say enough about your performance as Quark. It's, 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 um, it's muscular. It's different. It's, uh, <laughs> I know. It, it's, uh, it's measured. Uh, you don't miss a beat. Mm -mm. Uh, you got the best costumes. Yes, yeah, you do. Yeah, I truly. Uh, I mean, uh, just uh, the dandy. I mean, right. I think we were dandy. talking earlier. Yeah, dandy. Yeah. The dandy meets puck. No yeah. curtains are safe in the, yeah, at the no studio. Curtains. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of curtains died <laughs> because of war. For suffering, you go. Where the fuck are my curtains? Bob once told me that he, that uh, he. That he loved designing for Quark. It was his favorite character in Deep Space Nine to design mm. for. Because they put me in wonderfully colorful costumes. Had to do something to offset that head of mine. And um and but they were great costumes. You wore them heavy well. and they were hot. Right. But um my brilliant wife, when I was complaining about the costume and the makeup one day, uh at home, said to me, and she knew that I wanted to be on Star Trek. Really wanted it. She said, Well, Armin, if you want to be a knight. Mm. You have to wear the armor, mm. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. What were the teeth well, like? Delivered. The yes. teeth, the teeth were a, a little bit of a problem. I got uh, they they made me sound more like Humphrey Bogart, which I think the character was modeled after. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and uh, they they they'd never really got in the way, but uh, they were distinctive. Uh, the voice was just, so I could, I could give up talking when I talked on the first episode because the teeth modified my voice a yeah, little. Sure. Um, and ironically, at the end of seven years, about a month and a half before we finished, I walked into my trailer and someone had stolen the teeth. <laughs> it was The teeth uh, were just not there. Yeah. I, I knew I put them in the same place for seven years. No, you're kidding. And they were gone. And Michael had to, uh, had to make new ones for me. And, and when uh, I did Lower Decks, um, and I'm very grateful for that, um, I had to wear substitute teeth, which weren't as good as the as the ones I had worn. Mm. Max got the uh, the Stonehenge of all. I know, really, right? I mean, that and can you imagine him having to kiss Chase Masterson? <laughs> Poor Chase, who played Lita, uh, had to be kissed with that tooth coming out. Oh. Snaggle tooth. <laughs> yeah, the check still. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, but you must have had to eat a ton of food to keep the weight on from the sweating that you would do under that headpiece. Uh, it was a lot. It was a lot, uh, as opposed to Renee, who couldn't eat anything because uh, his makeup yeah. came down to his lips. Right. And if he started to uh, to masticate, to chew, the, the bond would break. And he, he just didn't want to put his makeup artist through the work. And so he would just have yogurt for the first four years. And then after four years, he said, screw that. I'm, I'm just going to yeah. eat. Andy Robinson said, you know, he was kind of deeply unhappy, really, with, with having to wear that stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And, and, I mean, what does an actor have when he or she performs? He has his voice. He has his eyes. He has his face. Mm. And he has his body. So with Andy, you, you've covered up his face, which, which pinpoints his eyes. So... The great thing about his performance and many people who are good in prosthetic makeup is that you don't get any of this. You, no. you, you, you can't use any of yeah. that. It's all in your voice and all in your eyes. Right. And Andy's eyes were incredible. Mm -hmm. Oh, so were yours. He was noting, you know, the Michael Caine school of acting. You never blink. You dude. don't. You never blink. <laughs> I, I mean, is that? I mean, do you, do you? Does that come easy, or do you just? Concentrate on fear, not. fear, fear. <laughs> fear. If I blink, they'll fire me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
joyous years, no doubt. They, they were it was joyous. A happy set, wasn't it? Uh, uh, Deep Space. Uh, you know, I've heard happy. that said. I wouldn't necessarily agree oh, with okay. that. Okay. No, uh, I, I'm not saying that we the, didn't have a good time. We did. I wouldn't. If I were going to compare our set, and I don't know so much about yours, uh, although um, you had Scott. And, we were and, very lucky uh, with Scott. Yeah. I've known Scott long yeah. before Star Trek, yeah. long before either one of us did Star Trek. <coughs> He's a gent. He's beyond that. Yeah. He's the best of the best. So with that as number one on yeah. your call sheet, I'm sure that was a very nice set. Yeah. Our set was nice too. But when I think about the sets that I visited, the Voyager set or the Next Generation set, Happy. Right. Happy's well, wrong word. We were not his choice. Yeah, when yeah. he joined in. Yeah, it was a different set. He was him. coming from a different uh, yeah. vibe. and Yeah, the, the Next Generation people, they laughed all the time. We didn't laugh. Right. Um, At all. Not really. Not really, no. God, what a, we did. It's a long day, isn't it? No. And you because, come in early. Uh, yes, we came in early. We didn't. We were there. I'm very proud of this, actually. We were there to do the best Star Trek we could possibly do. We took the work very seriously. We were blessed with phenomenal actors, phenomenal yes, supporting actors. If we didn't do our best with these guys, we were going to look really bad. Yeah, yeah. So we did our very best. Um, and, and one of the things, well, and so it wasn't laughs. We, we worked on our craft and, and, and try to do it as best we could. The other thing is, there's an old adage, uh, the tone of a set is set by number one on the call sheet, the first person on the call right. sheet. And the first person on the call sheet is the, is the captain in Star Trek. Uh, Avery is a very wonderfully serious, charismatic person. And he would laugh, and when he laughed, it was, mm. it was room-filling. But he didn't laugh that often. Mm. And, um, and so we were all very serious-minded. Now, um, I will tell you about doing the best work we can. I'm very proud of this, so I'm going to boast about this. I've been boasting a lot already, but I'm very <laughs> proud of this. Because the people who played Ferengi were encased in, in rubber prosthetic heads, and because we had those large ears, which made us deaf. Really? We had, we had large pieces of rubber over our ears. Mm. So uh, we weren't completely deaf. But if you if you put your hands over your ears like this, and talk, that's what that's it sounded it. like. Really. And so I asked them. I asked Max and Aaron and Jeffrey and Wally Sean and Cecily Adams and anybody that was part of a Ferengi episode to come to my house Saturday and Sunday um, to rehearse the scenes, run the lines, yeah. talk about what we were going to do. Hmm. Max would always say after we had done, okay, now how is the director going to screw this up? <laughs> and, and so we would do that too. You um, would get the scripts early enough to oh, be able to. Sometimes, to, to, yeah. yeah. Right. A, a, especially, you know, if we got a Friday, then we could work on it. And, and kudos to all those actors for seven years. I showed up. Came to my house for every major Ferengi episode and worked on those scripts so that we could give them not only the best performance, but we knew also, you guys didn't have to wear makeup, so you don't know this. It was 12-hour days, that you do know. Mm. About hour nine, having been in those heads Oof. for nine hours, I'm sure it's true for the Cardassians, Andy as well, Mark. At nine, after, after hour nine, it was like having a bad head cold. Mm. It was like you couldn't see straight. 
your, your, the lines were, you know, in and out. Um, you could barely stand up. Um, but we knew we had another three hours to go. And, and, and I think that's one of the reasons the other actors showed up is that we needed to know how to act on fumes mm. right. in order to, to keep going. In the it shortened that day considerably and yeah, yeah. kudos and, and to, to you. Right. Yeah. So, it's a big uh, thing, though. I mean, if you get that rehearsal time before you're actually in front of the camera, it makes we the, huge what, difference. Huge. We, we did one episode where we got to uh, we got a script. It was the shuttle pod right. one, and it made a, an enormous difference. Right, because because you're you're not, because if you don't know this, you get on a set, you read it once, twice for the director mm. and the DP for the director of photography. You go to your trailer, and then you shoot it. Yeah, and there's mm-hmm. the, and then you hope you've. You know, you you work out in the master. You hope you get it. Yeah. Um, whereas myself and most of the people I worked with in those Ferengi episodes were all theater actors. Yeah. And we were used to rehearsal. We we wanted right. to rehearse this sucker. Right. And um and if if we were able to make the Ferengi believable, it's because of the time we put in on the weekend. I think on those scenes and particularly those characters, they are <clears throat> they require really pinpoint timing. Uh, it, and it shows. It yeah. really shows. And and kudos to especially to to Max and to Aaron. Um, yeah, phenomenally, phenomenal. Good They're so good. Yep. God bless Aaron. Oh. And uh, yeah, you really are. It's uh, a testament to the hard work and the talent. I mean, it, it really. I can't say enough. Were, were you <clears throat> a joy watching? Thank you. Did you do any theater during the time that you? No, were no theater. Show? I did a lot of other TV though. Mm. Um. Most people know that I did Buffy the Vampire Slayer yeah. at the same time. I did a Buffy. It, I saw that on your – yeah, yeah. so was it like – I did one episode. Whew, that's a set. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really? Oh, that was a set. <laughs> I, I did three years. Ew, God. Three oh, wow. years. So um, you, uh, you know what you know I, what it was I, like I, there. I, I do. And, yeah. and because uh, – aside from Anthony – That was not a happy set. No. No. Uh, no. Uh, and because <laughs> I came and went – because Sorry, I was I was a – I was uh, I was like Andy. I was a very familiar recurring character on Buffy. I was the asshole principal, principal. right? Yeah. yeah. So the, the 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 people who were having a hard time with each other would come secretly to my trailer and say, "You'll never guess what so and so." Oh God! And then and then the next day or another time, the other person would come. Hilarious! Say, You'll never guess what so and and, and <laughs> Did so, Josh Whedon never show up? Um, all the time. All the time? Yeah. Uh, you guys will appreciate this. Um, so Josh Whedon was there every day that I shot. Right. For three years. Right. Every, every day. day. And I, in the beginning, I thought, because we know Berman. Berman never was never up. on yeah. the yeah. And I thought, why is the artistic director, why is the, the executive producer here every time I'm here? Mm. Why, why is that? I thought, does he not trust me? You know, um, and it was such a dichotomy from Berman uh, Berman didn't show up, and Joss was there every day. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things Joss had to do was babysit. He had to babysit because they were mostly young actors. Yeah, and and he was making sure that um, everybody was copacetic. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And yeah, Tony uh, Tony uh, did a lot of that too. Tony Head was the other adult, you can say. They were all adults. But, uh, Tony was the other. I mean, he was of a certain age. Let me tell you, that's saying something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I... Bless you, Tony. I, I, uh, and I, yeah, Tony's terrific. Tony's terrific. Um, it, I had a lovely time on Buffy, and, and I didn't have to wear makeup. And I, I remember oh, going around to all the vampires going, drink a lot of water. Yeah. Drink a lot of water. Um, 
Hour nine. Yeah, yeah I was hour a nine. I was a watcher of a vampire that got. Oh, really? Yeah, I got bit. Jeff Cobra, do you know? Yeah, know, yeah, a, sure. Yeah. Jeff was the, the the dastardly vampire they had that yeah. week, and in an idle moment, watching him. Oh dear! Oh. <laughs> and then they morphed me live on screen. First time they ever did it. Uh, oh. They, I morphed into a vampire live on screen. That was some makeup too. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a long day. Then yeah. we chased around Glendale for a, a few <laughs> nights. <laughs> they like. Thankfully, they like to shoot at night because I. There were, I would say, three times when I had 26, 27-hour days. No shit. Uh, oh. I, I would start at 5 and do Quark, get out of makeup shooting? around 1 o'clock in the afternoon, drive to Torrance, where the high school was, and then shoot uh, You were double-dipping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, I didn't get that. Yeah. Nobody did. Again, Mr. Lucky. Oh, yeah. Mr. Lucky. I, I, I told the guys on Voyager – I said, How you should do what I – especially to to, uh, to Johnny Phillips, uh, Ethan Phillips. Um, I said, listen, they're not Starfleet. They're not going to use you that much. Um, so I said, you should try and do other TV shows like I did. Because it wasn't just Buffy. I did a lot of other mm-hmm. TV shows while I was shooting Star Trek. And and the line producer, uh, Steve Oster, allowed me to do all these shows. But the line producer for Voyager said no. No, your contract says you can only do the show, and you're only doing the wow. show. Oh, huh. Mr. Lucky, I, I got to do it. I mean, I, I was oh. going to say it's almost. I'm, I'm amazed that Rick let you do that, and that you know the line producers and, let you. Uh, they just jiggle, Steve, and, and I don't know about Rick, but Steve, who communicated with me, said if we don't need you, you can go off and do what you want to do. Wow. Oh, and Steve awesome. and the Buffy producer David, I don't know. They used to work it out, so. They would have conversations and say, okay, we need Armin for two scenes of Buffy. Well, we only need Armin for one scene on Star Trek. Great. You can have him on Wednesday and we'll take him on Monday. That's amazing. That's awesome. That's the way it should be. Yeah. And you were mentioning something about Starfleet and Johnny Phillips. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it was very interesting to me, and I, I passed this on to Ethan Phillips when he was cast as, as the non-Starfleet person in Voyager. Um, I said, you're going to find that if you're not part of Starfleet, if you're not part of the problem-solving team, you are an outsider, not only to the episode, but to some extent to the rest of the cast. Mm. Because the team works Mm. together to solve problems. And so they have a lot of scenes together where they're working it all out. And And then for both of us, we come in and provide comic relief. And, and, and therefore, we're somehow other mm-hmm. than Starfleet. Um, it, it was it was great to be on Star Trek, and both of us, you know, enjoyed that, and we're very honored to be part of the show and the franchise. But but it was sort of being the um, second class person on the show. Yeah, you I felt I, that. I, I, yes. I, yeah, I can I sense what you're saying. Um, not that we flocks, I guess, uh, are particularly prosthetic makeup character was part of the problem solving team. Definitely. And we didn't really have, we didn't have, which we did not have anyone. Well, when, when Jeff was around, yes. he, he would, you know, no agreed. Uh, but I think uh, look, I, I do. I mean, I felt that we were an accommodating cast very much. So Scott, we were talking about this. Scott was the first guy hand out. If he didn't know your face, uh, and even, even when he did, Prince. Yeah. he were, he would uh, he'd welcome you to the set and publicly in front of eighty people, you know, whether you were an extra or not, mm-hmm. and uh, just brilliant. I mean, uh, I can't say enough about that. Uh, but yeah, that's hard. That's hard to go to work when. Did you? I mean, how did you sort of 
put that to bed in your head? Well, I was sort of lucky, as always. Um, eventually, they began to to have the regular Deep Space Nine episodes, of which, I, of course, I was a part of. But then they began to have these Ferengi episodes. Mm. So that um, while their family, the Starfleet family, was growing and, and getting used to each other and bonding really well, same thing was happening with the Ferengi family, right. that the, the actors that were involved in the Ferengi plots were growing and bonding and becoming a unit. So what I lost on the swings, I got on the roundabout. <laughs> <laughs> it really translates to the screen. Uh, it really does. You guys are so great together. Uh, Max is such a great foil to... Yeah. Uh, and, to- and such a, a, a wonderful man. He took a lot of abuse from my character. Not from me, maybe mm. sometimes from me too. <laughs> but he took a lot of abuse from my character and uh, he always put up with it. He was, all, he was always there, 100%. And remember, uh, he didn't get cast as Quark. No, I right. And I thought about I, that for years. When you were telling oh, that story earlier, sure. I, I think about that. Can you imagine, you know, that's a tough having to deal seen. with an actor yeah. who got your part? Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, it's like your brother who became the quarterback for the uh, Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't. And you didn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's, it was a hard position, and, he, and he, he was so wonderfully kind and helpful and supportive um, and, and terrific as Rom. Oh, his, um, his performance just, is so yeah. measured and beautiful. Yeah. He doesn't get a lot to say. No. But it's just all there. Yeah. In fact, uh, Ira Bear, the showrunner, once shared with me a piece of information. He began to realize, watching dailies, that I would be loath to do the really large um, reactions to things. But Max was very capable of doing it. He was eager to do it. And so when they wanted a large Ferengi-like reaction... Uh, they would give it to Max. They'd give it to Max. <laughs> and he delivered and he every delivered. time. Yeah. It was just buttoned right on the nose of it every time. Yeah. When, uh, when did you start teaching? Ah. Um, before Star Trek, uh, during those, that year and a half when uh, there was no work and we were living in L.A., um, I got an opportunity to teach at a small Shakespeare festival here in Los Angeles called Theatricum Botanicum. And um, Ellen, name. it's a wonderful <laughs> name, and they do, and they they do. Uh, Will Gear is is Ellen's uh, father, the wonderful actor, stage actor, and TV actor from um, um, John Boy from um, oh, Wal- Walton's, and uh, and he came up with the name Theatrical Botanica, uh, and so I began to teach there as a way to make a living, just mm. simply to pay the bills. Wasn't very much, these but are, it was these something. Are, these are already actors. I mean, it's, you were coaching. It, I, I, I was. Uh, I would not say, except for that Hill Street Blues performance during that time, I was not an actor. Uh-huh. I, I was doing. Forgive me. I was doing uh, commercials, and that is acting, but it wasn't the type of acting Different that I type. was looking for. Mm-hmm. And I needed to pay my bills. Uh, Kitty and I would walk the dogs and just try to scratch our heads, going, "Are the rents coming up?" Yeah. Really? Uh, how do we pay for this? So when Ellen offered me uh, this job to to teach a little, I, I I took that up, and it was again lucky because it turned out to be something that I was passionate about. I, I became passionate about teaching, specifically about teaching Shakespeare. And as the years have gone by, 
I've become more and more knowledgeable, not only about Shakespeare, but how I teach it and, and what I focus on. And uh, it eventually led to a career, short-lived career, uh, at University of Southern California, where I was an adjunct professor of Shakespeare yes. in the theater department. But I've taught Shakespeare all over, all over, and, and really enjoy it. And, and if I had my druthers, if, if life threw this curve at me and I had to choose between acting and teaching, without thinking about it, I would take on teaching, as long as it paid as well. Right. <laughs> really? Would you now? Yeah, absolutely. So, and you never, you never find the frustration in uh, in having someone, or is it the joy of seeing them, the light going on? And it is the joy of, of seeing the light because the right. way I teach Shakespeare, Shakespeare, yeah, um, it, it, it gives people such a new insight into how to look at at the lines, primarily the lines, and, and sometimes of the characters as well. And and watching that light go off as often as it does in my class, only not that I'm such a great teacher, which I am, but <laughs> but, but rather because it's such a new way of looking at it, uh, and it and it, it's an old way of looking at it because it's the way Shakespeare looked at it. Um, and so seeing that um, is such a joy. Describe what that would be then. Uh, so uh, okay, I, I will I will give you a, a very quick example. When I teach Shakespeare, I, I teach what's called rhetoric, and, and that's what Shakespeare was taught, and his contemporaries were taught uh, from the first day of school to the last day of university. And they were steeped in the rules of rhetoric. So It's a recognized st- uh, science, science, an exactly. art form. Yeah, an art it's form. the art form of, of preparing an argument to convince someone of the rightness of an action. Right. And, and there, are about, there are different techniques in that science, that art form, that are called figures, hence the figure of speech, uh, the figure of speech, right. figure of speech. Um, uh, we get that expression from rhetoric, the figures of speech. Mm. One of the figures is something called antithesis, where, where you compare two things that are opposite. The most famous uh, antithesis in Shakespeare is to be or not to be. And a good actor uh, has to recognize that that antithesis is there. And by the way, it's not just for actors, it's for readers of Shakespeare as well, or directors, or anybody encountering Shakespeare. If you don't recognize and identify some of the basic principles of rhetoric, then you really can't fathom what's being said. So, a good actor can't say this way, to be or not to be, that is the question, because there's no sense of antithesis in that. Mm. If you're an actor who wants to live, then the to be part of the equation is the more important part. Then the actor has to say to be and then denigrate the second part or not to be. That is the question. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a Hamlet who wants to die, who's contemplating suicide, then the not is the important part. To be or not to be. That is the question. Now, that's an easy one because it's such a famous line. You don't really get a sense of that. But when you realize that on every page of Shakespeare, the figure of antithesis is there. And this is one, an antithesis is only one of 200 figures. Um, once you get a sense of looking for the, the rhetorical figures, all of a sudden the language is exponentially clearer to everybody involved. So 
with that segue, if I may, and I know you're going to ask me anyway, but I want to get to it now. I want to do your class. I On the cruise, I, I, I did um, the O for a Muse of Fire. Oh, for a... <laughs> I'm funny. Um, anyway, I did that um, for you were teaching, you were doing a class. Which I will do on this cruise as well. Excellent. I'm going to check it out as well because I sat there after that and the, the notion of rhetoric which I'd never heard before, was a revelation to me. Mm. I now understood it, as you just said, in a completely new, much more accessible way. Right. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it is, it's a, it's a, unfortunately, somewhere around uh, the beginning of the 20th century, the teaching of rhetoric, at least in American schools, was, was foregone. Mm. It was always taught up until then. And then for some reason, public schools and private schools just forgot. You can still get it in college, but it's a rare mm. pre-college class that teaches you that. And it is, it is the Rosetta Stone for me anyway for uh, performing and reading Shakespeare. Now, that said, I want to get to my books. Oh, yes. yes. So um, uh, I've written a series of books. I've written several. I've written actually two series. First series was called Merchant Prince, which uh, I started and wrote while I was doing Deep Space Nine. And and these books. This is the John D. This is John D. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the story for these books started also in Deep Space Nine. So it's taken me twenty to twenty five years to to get these books written and uh, published. Um, but they, it, it's a historical mystery uh, about Shakespeare and, as you say, John D. John D. For those of you who don't know who John D. is, was was the great English Renaissance scholar who was both a scientist. A mystic, a philosopher, um, uh, an astrologer, an astronomer, a mathematician. He was a Renaissance man. Uh, he was also, as I said, a mystic. And and history has not done him well because of his his uh, investigations into angels, which he swore. Bible says angels exist, so he assumed angels exist, and he wanted to talk to them. He wanted not in this city of angels. <laughs> That's right. Right. <laughs> Good, good, very good. Um, why didn't I write? I'm going to write a fourth book. Um, Couldn't resist that one. And and uh, because he he spent many years trying to talk to angels through con men. Con men sort of told him that they could, and and he took their word that they could. And and he in fact wrote and what's called the Enochian dictionary. It's a dictionary of angelic terms, the way the words that angels use in in heaven. But because he did that, uh, uh, history has looked unfavorably on him, and they've they sort of relegated him to the nut bag. Um, <laughs> but in the last seventy five years or so, uh, his reputation has been burnished, and uh, he's he's being appreciated for all the incredible scientific things that he did as well. Part of uh, Elizabeth the first, yes, uh, 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 court, and court. and and uh, she always attributed the fact she had a very long reign. She did, yeah, and and uh, he all. She always attributed her long reign to the fact that John D. picked her inaugural day. I believe it's November the twenty or it's November the seventeenth. I believe is the day that Elizabeth the first became queen, and he picked that day for her. Right, and and because he was and she was uh, an astrologer, um, it was a propitious day, and she she attributed her long reign to the fact that D. had picked the, the right. Um, Day for her, but but he did other things for her as well. Uh, he helped to um, 
to work on. I can't remember its longitude or latitude to do that for the English uh, sailors. Um, he he did he brought a lot of scientific things from Europe back to England. Um, he, he trained a lot of people, uh, not only in science but also in literature. He had the largest library in England, I believe. I believe the the, uh, the National Library of England. Uh, may have started with these books. What sort of background uh, was he? Was he a humble origins? Or uh, yeah, his father was a, was a bureaucrat, and he, and he, he, was, a, he was one of those students who raises, rose to the top of his class immediately, right. well, well respected, um, and, and, and wanted to, to learn about everything, about everything. And at that time, perhaps you could do that. Yeah. And, and he studied constantly. And the queen, unfortunately, promised him all of his lifetime that she would promote him to bigger and better things, which she never did. Oh. Mm. Um, she was very stingy, Elizabeth was. Mm. And uh, he died in poverty. Oh, but, did. But, um, How did you discover him in your... Michael Scott, a, a prolific Irish writer of living, I believe he's still alive. Was he the chap that helped you ghost, um, yes. co-write? Yes. Ghostwrite. Uh, he, he co-wrote the first yeah, novel first with me, one. and he, and he yeah. introduced me to... to uh, John D. and and, uh, and so we wrote uh, the first book of Merchant Prince together. Uh, then uh, fast forward several years, and I'm visiting with Michael in Ireland, where he lives, and he mentioned the idea of writing a series of novels where D. and Shakespeare get together and, like like Holmes and Watson, solve mysteries that involve the various plays that Shakespeare wrote. That's, that's a fabulous yeah, it's a great uh, marriage, idea. isn't it? It's a great idea. And <laughs> yeah. so my books, uh, after 20 years, I only got one play done, <laughs> and that's Twelfth Night. And um, my books are about historical play. characters, very historic. Everything in my books that, that don't have to deal with Twelfth Night are historically correct. Every, everything, the chairs, the table, the food, the dresses, everything is historically correct. But they interact with the characters of Twelfth Night, who, of course, are fictional. And so it's a book both of history and of uh, comedy. Do the characters right. live in a real world? Yes, they live in a real world. They, they right. live on, on, on Illyria, which right. is the title of, oh, the, right. of the series. But for That's me, uh, Illyria is the Isle of Jersey. Right. In the English Channel. Yeah. And, uh, and there are... They're all tax exiles. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, can I see sure. them? Yes. I want to get a I little should, more close-up. I've got them. And, I'm, and, I'm, and this I is feel... this is the one that just came out two days ago. Oh wow! This oh, is congratulations. Uh, in balance. Thank you. It's in balance of power, uh, which is the third of the three. Connor's got the first and the second. I'm ordering Betrayal of Angels. Home. Betrayal of Angels. That's the first one, and the second one is uh, Sea of Troubles, which is the middle book. Sea of Troubles. And. Um, now, did Michael help you rewrite them all, or did no, you, no? Did I, did uh, I not see what, what happened? Else? No, um, Michael helped me write uh, the first Merchant Prince book, mm. and he wrote about sixty percent of it. He was the writer; I was the actor. I was the and talent. He, he does. He had a history of, of historical. Folklore. Yeah, novel. yeah, yeah. And he, in fact, uh, after uh, Jackson did uh, Lord of the Rings, um, Michael's one of Michael's books was going to be the second picture, and Kidding. at the very last moment, that got nixed, and I don't know why. Oh. Um, that's not so lucky. Yeah, that's So Michael helped me. Michael with the first book, and then right. uh, he took off. And uh, a, a wonderful um, science fiction writer named Chelsea Yarbrough uh, helped me with the second book. And then um, 
I, at that point, I thought, I can do this myself. Good for you. Yeah. So I wrote the third book myself. Did you purposely not go back to Michael for book two, or was he just busy? Or He was busy. Yeah, right, right. He, he was writing other things, and uh, um, yeah, so he, he was busy, and, and so I didn't go back. How difficult was it to publish and get, you know? Well, the first one was easy because, <clears throat> uh, again, Mr. Lucky, <laughs> I'm sitting at a, at a, at a convention really. <laughs> next to a publisher. No, where? I, I can't remember where it was years ago, was, but I was at a convention oh. and, and, um, and he said to me, I'm thinking of, uh, putting science fiction actors to get together with science fiction writers and coming up with stories that we can publish. And he had, uh, I can't remember whom, but he had a couple already, uh, that he had used. And he said, would you be interested in, in doing that? And I as a young man, I had some aspirations to be a writer. So this wasn't formulated in any germ way or no, no? No. And so um, uh, so he teamed me up with Michael, and, and Michael and I met in, uh, uh, in L.A., and uh, we came up with the plot for Merchant Prince. And, and Michael was supposed to help me write all three books, but as I said, Michael had other things and he had to leave. So then they teamed me up with, with Chelsea Yarbo, and then... Where does the 34th line come in there? What's that? 34th rule. Rule, sorry. Okay. Um, I, here's, here's something I'm admitted to right now. I did not write one word of the 34th rule. Um, not one rule. Not, not, <laughs> not, one, not one through 33. <laughs> David wrote all of, all of the book, and he's very good. Um, what happened was David and I and Eric, and I'm purposely not saying last names because I don't remember everybody's last name. I can barely remember my last name. <laughs> We went to Ira and tried to pitch the 34th rule as an episode. Ah. And were turned down. And when we left the room, we, we knew we had been turned down. Um, we were disappointed. And David said, why don't we write this as a book for the Star Trek book series for Simon & Schuster? And having already written Merchant Prince, I thought that was a great idea. And I assumed that I would write with him the way I wrote with Michael or Chelsea Yarbrough uh, in tandem together. But David didn't make that assumption, hmm. uh, and, and rightfully so. Uh, David wrote the whole thing himself, and, and they put my name on the cover as the lead writer. Right. It's a lie. Wow. Uh, David wrote it all, <laughs> and, and he did a very good job. <clears throat> Produced by... Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> Written by. I didn't say it either. But, but, I, but if you're interested in Elizabethan history, if you're interested in Shakespeare, and I, I, I propose. As am I. I propose a suggestion for how Shakespeare became. He went from being a lad from a small town, Stratford upon Avon, to becoming English language's greatest author. Um, I propose how that happened in mm. my books. Oh. Connor was asking you before we came on air, as it were, you know, what's your take on whether or not Shakespeare actually wrote the stuff? So uh, let's go back to that uh, discussion. Um, okay. It, you had so, some nice things to uh, say. Yes. I, I, this is my answer when, when asked that question. Do you think Shakespeare wrote the books? Now, as, as I said to Dominic and Connor, we're all actors. We know that actors can never keep a secret, that that's just not possible. It's not in our DNA to do that. i got a couple. <laughs> but you're going to tell us now. Yeah. Um, 
And so I know that Shakespeare, who was part of the Queen's Company and the Queensmen and the Kingsmen for years, and worked with with uh, similar actors. Um, they're called shareholders. They were equal partners in the company, plus the hired men that they hired. You cannot tell me that for twenty years and more, uh, these actors kept the secret that Shakespeare didn't write these plays. Yeah. That, that just it's it's preposterous. It's preposterous. It? Yeah. And then the other part of the equation uh, that I like to propose is that, again, as we all know, when you're doing a modern play, a new play, and you're sitting there with the writer, almost. Always, when you're sitting in there with the writer, after you, the actor or the director, has read the script, you have questions about the script, and you ask the writer, why did you write this, or what does this mean, or what did you intend to do with this? And I'm sure Shakespeare's actors would have done the <laughs> same thing with their writer, and you cannot tell me that for 20 years, Shakespeare said, uh, uh, I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they would have known. Scurries off to ask the Duke of Essex. Find his, what do you find mean? his flip phone <laughs> and say, Essex, what do we mean by this? <laughs> it's double touch. What does this mean? Right. Uh, the, yeah, question, I mean, the real question is, how did he find the books that all scholars believe he must yes, have read? Yeah. And that is part of the answer that I give oh, here. Um, the question is, how did Shakespeare get these books? There are no public libraries. Books are really expensive. Yes. How did he have access to these books that we know he used to write his plays? Mm-hmm. Do you have, I mean, can you, do you want a thumbnail sketch uh, uh, or do you want to save it for no, the No, read the, the book read. Yeah, yeah. yeah, good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ordering as soon as I get home. That's uh, very exciting. They sound and if you want to order it, you go to www.armandshimmerman.com backslash shop and you can buy the books All there. right. What's the post? Shimmerman with one M in the middle. Did you bring a box with you, by the way? A box? No. 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 Right. Not on Amazon. Through your website. Yes, you can get it through Amazon. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, and, and some bookstores carry it as well. Absolutely. You prefer .com. Uh, uh, I get more money that way. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Noted. Um, and then... Uh, uh, thank you, Mark. <laughs> the foundation that um, you work with... Uh, your lovely wife. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I wouldn't call it a foundation. I would call it a charity. charity. I wouldn't, I would, I would call it, <clears throat> it's somewhere between foundation and charity because charity indicates that we're just raising money for a particular thing. And what PanCan, and I'm about to tell you more about that, what PanCan does is more than just collect money for, um, but they do their own research. They do their own outreach to, um, to patients, to doctors, to anyone in the medical community. And so let me tell you a little about um, this organization. It's called PanCan. And uh, several years ago, uh, my wife Kitty and Jonathan Frakes and I started what we call Star Trek Against Pancreatic Cancer. Uh, Unfortunately, Jonathan's brother died of pancreatic cancer. Mm. Uh, Fortunately, uh, my wife Kitty Swink is a survivor of pancreatic cancer, and uh, and I am the husband of a survivor. So we we formed a, a, a um, fundraising team to raise money for PanCan, and uh, because our lives were very much affected by pancreatic cancer. And when my wife was diagnosed, and she is now an 18-year survivor of pancreatic cancer, uh, when she was uh, diagnosed the survival rate was 3%. Uh, I'm happy to say that as of this year, uh, the survival rate is 11%. Still not good, of course, but getting better. 
And the only way we'll make that to 90, 100% is by organizations like PanCan that raise money to do research and help. If anyone out there has a relative, a friend that is uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, please look up PanCan, P-A-N-C-A-N, because not only will they help you, advise you how to deal with this disease and this and this diagnosis, they can also tell you the best doctors in, in your organization. And every year, PanCan puts on an event called Purple Stride, which is a fundraiser. And, um, and there, are, there are marches across the country, Purple Stride marches, to help raise money to defeat pancreatic cancer. Last year, Kitty uh, and Jonathan marched in Los Angeles, and I marched in Kansas City. So um, um, please think about this organization. If you see us tweeting or social media about it, please think about, about perhaps donating to this. And by the way, because we mentioned this to uh, John Billingsley, whose mother died of pancreatic cancer, uh, John has just joined our team as, as one of the oh, co-founders. Oh, wow. Mm, that's that's wonderful what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, uh, we want to see this disease disappear. We want everyone to have Kitty's career with this disease. Right. Yeah, please, God. That's a, a small world uh, connection we have that, you know, I've recently been seeing Mr. Joe Hurt. Um, Michael led me to him, and, of course, Kitty, Kitty introduced Michael introduced to Michael. Joe. Yeah. How did uh, she meet him back then? Charlotte Ray was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and... Um, Larry knew that Kitty had had pancreatic cancer, and he asked Kitty if she would speak to Charlotte about her diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And while they were talking, Larry, who had been going to Joe Hurt, um, recommended that Kitty go to Joe as well. And and that's when Kitty met Joe, and a phenomenal healer, uh, 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 an expert in Korean um, medicine. Yeah. And... um, does miraculous things. And, and I've seen people miraculously, it's not, I shouldn't use miraculous because that sounds, that sounds no, science fiction. Yes. It isn't that it isn't at all. That, it is medicine. Yeah. It's just Eastern medicine. And, but he's able to help people to get through physical ailments. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's, and, and as I said to Dominic, if you've got an ailment that is fatal, one of his best abilities is to help you face death. And, I, and I've mm. talked to a number of people who were in that situation and their deaths were made easier by what Joe was able to give them. Yeah, he's a, he's a truly wonderful human being and he's spent a lifetime uh, certainly, yeah, being, as he said to me yesterday, how long have I been bhakti? Uh, it's decades now. And um, yeah, it shines through. Yep. I, uh, I, I met him at just the right time. Uh, is a good person to know, and 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 my wife attributes her recovery uh, to both Western medicine and Eastern medicine. Yeah, no, I think that the combination of the both is uh, is probably the right tank to take. Well, that's uh, your work with the uh, organization is fantastic, Armin, and I hope that maybe uh, we already donate quite a portion of our. Well, we haven't been paid yet, <laughs> people. We have not been paid yet, and we're already giving a. Sh- Load of money to John Billingsley, but we'll. Find You're not paid. I mean, I'm not getting paid for this. <laughs> oh wait, hold on. 
but we have had them for this long. Uh, we'll find a way where Absolutely. we can. Where we can yes, we can, uh, if we just tell people as we you. are now, just go to PanCan, www.pancan.org. Um, and make a contribution or, or give to uh, Star Trek against uh, pancreatic uh, cancer um, for Purple Stride. Um, that would be great. Uh, we yeah. will do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you played Dr. Nefarious. Oh, my God. Let's yeah. talk about that for a sec. Yeah. I, I couldn't help it. I mean, I'm not particularly au fait, but the name alone uh, on a video game oh. uh, for Ratchet and Clank. Ratchet and Clank. Yeah. Um, Tell me about again, Dr. Mr. Lucky. Mr. Mr. Lucky. Um, <laughs> Renee had done Renee Aubergenois. Yeah, had Aubergenois. Mr. Yes, Mr. Voiceover. God bless him. Had done a lot of voiceovers, and his college roommate was his voiceover agent. They were they that's they were friends since college. T.J. Escott. What are the chances of that? I mean, it's nuts. Not, not very it? good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I met T.J. through Renee, and. I, and I know I'm wise enough to recognize where my career is either going or where it's not going. And I knew at the time that I asked this question of TJ that my life on front, in front of the camera was probably going to begin to go downhill. Star Trek was over. Buffy was over. A lot of the appearances that I was making were, were not showing up as, as much as they used to. And I thought, I need to reinvent myself. I need to find something else. And I knew Renee had done a lot of voiceovers. And so I cornered TJ once and asked him, would he represent me as a voiceover client? And he very professionally said, send me your voiceover reel and I will, um, and I will consider it. But I didn't have a voiceover reel. And Mark I Ground. We, we drive. Did you, you see those studios on the corner? Did you go to Mark? I did. I didn't go to Mark. No. Right. I, I went to a wonderful his teacher director named Charlie Adler. Any of you ever come across? Oh, I know that. I know name. the name. Yeah. Oh, he's done a ton of stuff. Ton of stuff. And a wonderfully uh, comic, energetic man. I always say about Charlie, he's Robin Williams on speed. Um, <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a handful. <laughs> um, and I. I went to Charlie's class because he's an old friend of mine, uh, and uh, and Charlie helped me uh, to work on voiceovers. And he, he missed one class, and he, his substitute teacher was a lady named Chris Zimmerman. And uh, so, to make this story a little bit shorter, TJ eventually hired me because I got a reel together. And uh, one of my first auditions was for Chris Zimmerman, hmm. who was the substitute teacher. And they cast me as Dr. Nefarious in Ratchet and Clank. Now, this is about 15, 18 years ago. Um, and uh, I thought it was a one-shot deal. Give us a taste. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> squishes! I hate squishes! Uh. Uh, he's very high up and he's very energetic. And he talks at the very top of my range. That's a lot of work. <laughs> um, that sounds great. Uh, and yeah. um, <laughs> not and, what I thought I was going to no. get. <laughs> and and the um, the people over Insomniac Games fell in love with this character, and so the, the one shot deal has now turned into what is it? Uh, I think it's eight games, one movie. 
uh, and almost a TV show. We, we, there was a pilot for, for Ratchet. Wow. wow. Um, and, uh, and it's just been a godsend. And, and it, you know, again, Mr. Lucky, this should not have happened. It should not have happened. So and, first, that happened. your first audition for <laughs> One of my first. Over. Absolutely. It wasn't the first, but one of the first. And then, uh, if I may, and I've done a lot of voiceover for other things as well. But uh, other one that probably nobody knows that I've done the voice for, um, but I'm very proud of. It's it. It's some of the best writing I ever encountered in my life, and I've done a lot of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a game called Bioshock. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I was going to ask you. Hey, the nurse in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your game? Are you still here? <laughs> so. Um, it, no, don't I play so the, shy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I play the. Uh, very iconic character in Bioshock. There, are, I believe there are three versions of. There are three different installations of Bioshock. In fact, they're making a movie of Bioshock right now, um, which I'm not in. But I, I play perhaps the pivotal character of Andrew Ryan, which anyone who's played Bioshock probably will find that very hard to believe. That is he handsome. He is. He is. God bless. Isn't that fun? <laughs> but but some of the speeches that they wrote for for me for my character are incredible. Hmm. And, and get Mark to play back some of this. They are incredible speeches. They are right out of Anne Rand is what they are. Really. And um, astonishing speeches. And and unlike any other voiceover work I ever did, we I would I would come in and do uh, my work. And then I'd come back a month later and I'd say to them, didn't, didn't I do this speech already? And they said, yeah, we'd like so much what you did. We changed it. We made it better. And, and then I would do it again. And I'd come back a month later and there'd be other work to do. But the, the speech was, again, rewritten, even wow. better. Wow. And, and, um, and, and those speeches, it's a phenomenal game. Yeah. But, but, but the language that they gave me was astonishing. And, and it's a great thing about being a voiceover actor. Yes, it can be very, you know, hilarious. You heard you heard the Dr. Nefarious. But it has allowed me to play roles that I could never play on camera. Me too, a couple of times, yeah. yeah. And it's it's very precise art form. It is that. Like it all done. Know. I talked about before about the eyes and the face and the, but here you only have your specifics in the way you say yeah. things. So you don't do mocam or anything like no, that. No, no I don't. But but I mean, you're not going to believe this. It, it, one time in my career, I, I played the voice of Superman. No. You, yeah. Can you imagine well, me as Superman? I was Superman. Sure. No, sure. You, yeah. Yeah. Are you Super Kitty Mouse? Swink? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Super Mouse, absolutely. Uh, but you, you can play things that you would they would never consider yeah. you for. And, and, uh, and because of who I am, you know, uh, I'm a balding, elderly, that's hard to say, elderly, uh, strange European, European, uh, Eastern European looking person. Uh, um, uh, they only cast me for what I look like and, and what I can do with what I look like. Yeah, you're but an actor though. I, I'm an actor, you but are, we know, we know. It screams out of you, you know. We, we know that when you walk in, 
your audition is about half done when you walk through. It the is. Door. It's, uh, a di- yeah. it's a bit yeah. different in theater, though. I think that it you is can a win roles in the theater, and that's why I continue in the theater. Yeah, uh, uh, my my TV work is is not over, but but it's we can see the sunset. Um, the wedge is getting thin. Yeah, it's getting yeah. very thin. Right. But in the theater, which I still I told you, I was just when I marched for for Purple Stride, uh, I was doing a play uh, in Kansas City. Um, so I still work in the theater a great deal because there is a little bit more room to do that. But in TV and film, half your audition is over when you walk in it the door is. and haven't said They've a word. made up their mind and right. you have not even right. put the, yeah. Not that we get to walk in anymore these no, days. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, whether you've, you've, you've but they do the same thing. They, they look the at you on the on the film yeah. and go, "Okay, well, yeah, no. next, yeah." Before yeah, you even get a chance to, it's do probably it even more gruesome. Right. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, so voiceovers is a is a wonderful field, and I've and some of the great voiceover actors that I have worked with are phenomenally are, talented. Yeah. yeah. Phenomenally they talented. Really yeah. One of my good friends. He has Mike. made quite a career. Yeah. He's Who is a part it? of Mike McCall. Mike McCall. He doesn't do what you call so much dramatic stuff. He's a spokesperson person. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, this night, tonight on, he was Fox. He was Fox Sports football and he was yeah. guy for the He's just got time. a voice, though. Yeah. It if you're, out of him. If you're blessed, like Michael Dorn, for instance, Michael does yeah. a, a ton of, of voiceovers. Um, it's a great the way to get around what you're born with, with the genes that mm. you're born with, and, and mm. you get to play something yeah. else. Mm. Okay. Well, so, on that note, okay. we should play some things. What about some fan questions? Okay, fan, some questions. fan questions. Some fan questions? Great. <laughs> two hours. Two hours. <laughs> you got two uh, hours? Yes. Yeah. No, 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 no. That's the answer to the first question. Uh, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> okay. Curated. Uh, Lydia from Patreon asks, what, learning, what learnings or takeaways have you found most influential in your technique and growth as an actor? Well, certainly, as I mentioned before, my learning about rhetoric uh, is is enormously important for not only Shakespearean acting but also voiceovers mm. and and uh, when I did them commercials. But uh, mm. so that's enormously important. Um, the one thing I've learned, but not yet mastered, as I've also mentioned, is how to do less. Uh, <laughs> I do think that doing less as an actor is better than doing more. Sometimes more is required. Certainly, Quark required more, but but um, I think less is more is a good um, maxim to keep. I have to say, you sound like a wonderful teacher. Uh, I am. <laughs> I know you know that. I don't like this less thing. <laughs> I'm sure you do it too, Bob. I'm sure you do it, and I've seen you do it. <laughs> I'm not happy with that. <laughs> but isn't it fun when you get to do more? <laughs> yeah, right. It's about trusting yourself, isn't it? Yeah. And that takes uh, some self soul searching and uh, some maturity. And yeah. Uh, were you uh, wearing the mask, as it were, with with Cork? Did you find it easy to look at yourself week after week? Do you find it easier? You know, uh, I had the same. I, I watched your interview with Andy Robinson, and I had exactly the same experience that Andy had. Um, Early on, I was taking a pee in my trailer, and there's a mirror right over the toilet. <laughs> and I went, oh, you're an alien. <laughs> you don't have to act an alien. You, you just are, are an alien. Right. You look like an Kidding. alien. And, and uh, yeah, the mask helped. It's freedom, isn't it's it? It's great freedom. It yeah. truly is. And, you know, you can do, frankly, quite a lot less because you're screaming more anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you don't. They'll accept you. You know, Westmore, uh, who was the makeup artist, uh, mm. 
once he made you up to look like an alien, everybody will believe you're an alien. And if you had, I have to put a plug in for Karen Westerfield, my personal makeup artist. Right. Her artistry was so good, the camera could come right in. I loved, I loved right. the, I did notice that your red eyes, yes, yes. from one side of the uh, the light, they're not red at all. Right. And then you just flash into the light and suddenly they... But yeah. It's quite and, remarkable. And, and that's Karen's contribution. Right. That was not Westmore. Uh, that was Karen. Like a bird of paradise. Is yes. She looked in my eyes the first day and said, they're rather blue. I'm going to put scarlet around them so that they'll pop out more. Oh, wow. And she got into a raft of shit for doing that. Did she? She, she got into a raft of shit <laughs> for that. And it, but they had already shot it, and they couldn't change it. Oh, oh how brilliant. And it, what a, what <laughs> a, I'm talking about lucky again. I mean, that is yeah. – <laughs> I don't mean to be funny, but, you know, those eyes are – and the teeth, of course. And, the teeth, the but, teeth. Uh, God bless those teeth. Um, you yeah. bless them. I'll, I'll just <laughs> – <laughs> uh, did, you, you did you wear contacts at all? No, no. They're your eyes. They're your eyes. Yeah, My but, blue eyes, yes. Yeah, massive stuff. All right, another question. Okay, next question is uh, from Nina from Patreon. What is your favorite rule of acquisition? Enough is never enough. Um, I've only recently started to learn them. Um, I had to learn them for each episode, but um, but Max was quite brilliant and knew them all by heart and can just spout them all off. But for years, I think my favorite was the first one. Once you have their money, uh, <laughs> never give it back. Um, and, and if I may say something about the rules of acquisition. People always said about my character, in the beginning anyway, and perhaps later on as well, um, that he was the least moral person in the cast or the character in the cast. And I would beg to differ. Hmm. And the reason is I had those, Quark had those rules of acquisition, which he lived by. Yeah, and it may not be your Ten Commandments, but it was. He was prepared his to, Ten Commandments, right. prepared to die for yeah. the rules of acquisition. <laughs> right. I yeah, mean, and so what is morality? Is it not following principles that you believe in that you think are right? In Ferengi culture, those were yeah. Ten Commandments, the two hundred and fifty, I think, two hundred fifty rules of, of acquisition. So, so that's my way of looking at the rules of acquisition. I kind of got this idea when I was uh, watching some of your episodes that uh, Quark was kind of the Tony Soprano of the uh, underworld in uh, <laughs> on the um, station. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> I'm not sure he had that much power. Uh, I'm quite sure he didn't have that much power. Um, but he was. He hoped to be Tony Soprano. Right. I, I, um, yeah. I, I, he. Um, There's a character in English TV, Del Boy. Uh, only fools and horses. He was a small-time crook, really, <laughs> and uh, but always dreaming of being a millionaire. Exactly. This time next year, Rodney, that was his younger brother, we're going to be millionaires. Really? And I'm very happy yeah. to say that since Deep Space Nine has gone off, Quark has done very well, I understand. He's got a franchise of restaurants, and uh-huh. uh, uh, he hasn't got a moon yet, but uh, he's working. I've gotten drunk in Quark's bars around the world. <laughs> I know that much. <laughs> How much do we charge you? <laughs> a little high. Do you know, I drink, I drink for free when I go. To Do you? <laughs> we have to cut that out. Um, uh, another question. Okay, great. Um, Jill Sheets from Patreon asks, uh, what was your favorite thing about playing Quark? The people I worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, they were wonderful actors and very good people. And because we were in some sense a family, we, we didn't always agree, but 
but they were superb people to work with. And when we know that, at least I believe, for an actor, all life comes from the other person, from the other actor. And I had such wonderful people to bounce off. And of course, for me, at the top of the list is Rene Aubergenois. Um, others very close, but <laughs> Rene is at the top because um, I had to get over my my awe of him at the beginning mm. because I knew Rene as, as one of the princes of the American theater. And so the fact that I was going to be working with him was a little intimidating. I got over that pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, That's actors, so cool. you know, you've ever eaten with one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Bird O'Prey 5 from our Patreon asks, I heard the memorable, the Federation is like root beer exchange between him and Andy Robinson, Garrick, wasn't in the original script and either added late or ad-libbed. Is there any truth to that? There is some truth to that. Um, uh, there is, uh, yes, yeah, some truth to it. So let me, let me explain what happened there. On one of our weekend meetings, Andy and I were looking at this root beer scene. And he was the serious Machiavelli, and I was the comic Machiavelli. Mm. And we, we began to think there's more to this exchange, the subtext, is, as Andy pointed out to you, and certainly we would all agree there's subtext in acting. We began to think about the subtext of this particular scene. And as we worked on it in my house on the weekend, um, we began to have very definitive ideas about what we were both communicating without saying things. We went to work on Monday. Jim Conway was the director. Where was he now? Jim Conway. Mm. And uh, as I said earlier, uh, we presented the scene to the director and he got a little cross-eyed and he said, <laughs> that's not funny. <laughs> and we went, it's not a funny scene. And he said, um, directors get their marching orders from the producers. Right. And he said, I, I, I can't shoot it if you do it that way. Because he'd been told whatever he was told about how to shoot this scene. All right. And uh, and it's the only time in the seven years that uh, the little Ferengi stood up on his hind legs and said, well, I, I'm not going to do it that way. No kidding. I'm not going to do it wow. that way. And, um, and he rightfully, very smart, said, then we'll have to bring the writer-producers in to, to see this. They don't like that. No. <laughs> it's a long walk. <laughs> it's yeah. a long walk. Even in the golf cart. Yeah, it's a, a long. That's at least 30 minutes. <laughs> so uh, our, our showrunner, Ira Bear, and I think Robert Hewitt Wolf, yes, was there. And came in and said, what's the problem? And we explained the problem. And Ira was not happy about this. So they'd written it ostensibly as a yeah. whimsy scene. Yeah, whimsy, yeah. comical, and we were supposed to get laughs from it. Right. And uh, Ira said to me and Andy, well, show me what you want to do. And we did. And then he said, can you at all do it the way it was originally written the way Jim wants you to do it. And Andy and I are oh, very threw, good actors. to Jim. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Andy and I are good actors, and we said, yeah, we can do it. 
and, and, and we did it. And Ira conferred with, with, uh, with the other writer, Robert, and uh, turned back. Couldn't have been more than 20 or 30 seconds. Turned to Jim and said, do an arm and swing. No kidding. Nice. And so, no, but I haven't finished yet. Mm. <laughs> so we did it. They saw it in dailies. They liked it. And like the Bioshock, they came back and we, we shot it again with a, with a slightly different script. Right. More leaning towards what is the eventual scene. Right. So um, we didn't ad lib. God knows. I don't know about your set. Oh, no, no. We didn't ad lib. That, that was your life. verboten. I mean, right. the, best, the best thing you could hear after you did a shot was to turn to the continuity director. And, and yeah. our set would say, DLP lobby, dead letter perfect. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. DLP. But they did rewrite it uh, so that it catered more to our interpretation of the scene. And, and that's the final scene. Well, In the context of that episode, because I've seen the scene, uh, but I've not seen the episode, I don't think. What is the context of that root beer conversation? Sure. So what happens is uh, Starfleet, uh, well, our people who are in Starfleet have gone out to fight the Dominion and they've left the station without, you know, our series regulars. They're all off on a mission. And, uh, and so Garrick comes into the bar and we begin to talk about Starfleet, and um, and he suggests they're a little like a taste of root beer. Right. Uh, These humans. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. And, um, and I think my character says, um, it's a little off-putting in the beginning, but after a while, you grow to like it. Yeah. Uh, but there's more to it as well. There's not much more, but there is more to it where we're – Sussing each other out. This is the subtext about we're not going to really say we like Starfleet, mm. but we are depending upon them to save our butts mm. uh, in this battle. Right. Mm. Right. Lovely. Yeah. That's, uh, that's funny uh, that you had to fight for that scene because that's one of the iconic scenes. It, it is. Thank you, Mark. And, and we're very proud of that. And, uh, and I don't know where I got the chutzpah to uh, stand up to uh, the powers of beat, but uh, I'm very proud that I did. I got lucky. It was late on in the <laughs> series, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. 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 So, you well, know. A scene partner to have. For oh, yeah. yeah. I've known Andy for a very long time. Um, Andy directed me in a play for which I won a, a nomination for a big award here in Los Angeles. Uh, the Birthday Party by Pinter. Was it at the Matrix? Yeah. Oh, yes, oh, wow. yeah right. Um Andy worked a lot, as you know, at the Great Matrix. Play, I worked it? at the Matrix quite a bit. My wife worked at the Matrix. Right. Some of our best friends uh, are from the Matrix. Um, Andy and the, and the actor I mentioned earlier, Gregory Itson, were a tag team. They worked together. I can't tell you how many plays they did together. Who did you play in the birthday party? I played uh, uh, Solomon. Uh, yes, uh, right. Uh, gold, gold, gold something. Goldsmith? It wasn't Goldsmith. No. Gold, Goldman? Goldman. No, I can't remember. But it, it is the... One of the two heavies that comes yeah. in. Yeah, good part. Yeah, very good part. For, and I obviously must have done a good job because they nominated me for an award. Well, so you played, <laughs> a, you played American or no. did you? No, you went, you went British. No, good for I, you. I you, went, you, went, you went London, yeah. London Jewish Cockney. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can do that, yeah, if you ask me. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I am an actor. I can't. I several accents I can do. I do voiceovers. You know. <laughs> Did I mention that? Did I mention it? <laughs> What's Andy like as a director? Pretty good, I would imagine. Andy's very good. Yeah. Andy's very good. Um, uh, 
he both lets you be on your own and then nudges you just when you need to be nudged. Um, and uh, has his own ideas about the play and um, just, just a wonderful director. And, and we are very close friends. In fact, uh, Irene called Kitty yesterday. Right. So, hmm. Yeah, he's a real, he's become a good buddy since uh, we started doing this and we met and then he came on board to do it. But we'd, I'd known him a little bit at the conventions. I only met him recently at the Doctor Who one down in uh, at the uh, airport in the last and, year and a half, two years. And he's, he's a He's a phenomenal, he, as good an actor he is, and he's a phenomenal actor. He really is. He's isn't a, he? just an even better director. Is he? No. Um, and he directed, I think, one, maybe two episodes of our show. But as a, as a theater director, there, there was a period of time when he was, without a doubt, the number one Los Angeles director of theater in, in Los Angeles. And he's still doing That's it. Fantastic. He's, he's just about to yes. strike up the band again. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, Another question? Yes. Uh, Shannon Brown from Facebook asks, I know you are well-versed in Shakespeare. How do you know that? (laughs) (laughs) Which Shakespeare character does Quark most closely resemble? Hamlet. Oh, look at you. (laughs) Lovely. Um, well, come on, you've got to go do that thing. And why? Was it a mother thing? <laughs> no, that's well, all I'm going to say. Uh, in my mind, Quark's Hamlet. He's, Hamlet. <laughs> He's certainly the Hamlet in my career. Oh. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, okay, I mean, I, now I follow you. Raison. Mark Amon from Patreon asks, has... Oh, he does not ask. He has a comment. <laughs> My partner makes me put on a Quark episode to make her feel better when she's not feeling well. I thought you were going to say something. I don't know where this was going to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've seen that fiction. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Thank you for a lot of memorable episodes. Uh, well, sweet I'm, mom. I'm glad and your your wife, mm-hmm. uh, par- excuse me, partner, partner uh, yeah. appreciates it. Um, that's who we did it for. We we did it, as I said earlier. We wanted to give you the best performances that we could possibly do, and uh, and it's it's nice to hear that after twenty five years, people are still appreciating it. Uh, that wraps up fan questions. Oh, nice. Okay, thank you very much. All thank of you. you. Yeah. Yeah. it's the three of us against Mark, who is the Oracle. Oh, okay, and has seen every episode yeah. of everything fifty times. Uh, <laughs> we rarely win. Um, we tied last week. Didn't we, we did tie last week. Yeah. It was a it was a it was a, a, a moot call. I think one or two of the okay. So question, and there's uh, five questions, okay? Question number one. In TV's original Star Trek series, how did a salt shaker serve as a prop on early episodes? A, Kirk used it to make a captain's log. B, McCoy used it as a medical scanner. C, Sulu used it as an orbit injection lever. D, a red shirt clutched it while freezing on a planet's surface. Well, Connor said it well, first, but I don't, do you I mean, know? I don't, okay. but it sure sounds like a salt shaker. That's what I would say. Okay, yeah. let's go with the salt shaker. The answer is B. B. You guys got it. <clears throat> All right. Yay. One one point for you guys. Oof. Well, <laughs> this is a rare, <laughs> Enjoy is a rare event. <laughs> uh, Lucky, question, see? Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> question number two. What do the Vulcans of Star Trek have to do every seven years? A. Mate. Oh, oh. <laughs> two zips. Oh, <laughs> four. Time out. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, when we okay. Uh, uh, we I used to get disqualified for that. 
Okay, yeah, I'm, just, yeah. I'm so sorry. No, go I'm not disqualifying you. Yes. Well, we all know that answer. Go for another question, I guess. Yeah, he gets oh, it. Really? He's okay. our guest. We're guest gets it. At least I knew it was Ponfar. Look at me. That's uh, right. That's right. That's right. Encyclopedia, right. mate. <clears throat> Two points for you guys. Question it's number a, it's three. It's been a while. <laughs> question number three. Which of the following people hasn't been an artificial or cybernetic being at some point in their lives? A, Data. B, Hugh. C, Dr. McCoy, or D, Captain Picard? I mean, you both came in before. Give it to Mark. He's been gracious to us. He's been gracious to us. Is it McCoy? I'm McCoy. Yeah. It is, isn't it? He was a boy. Yeah, he didn't want to put the makeup on. All right, two, 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 one. one. Question number four. What is the ritual every Vulcan has to experience to prove themselves removed of all emotion? A, Kolinar. B, Katin. C. Kobayashi Muro. D. Kaswan. Dumb. Oh, he beat me. It's A, isn't it? It's A. He did beat you? He did. I think so. It's A. Oh, okay. 2 2. 2 2. This is it. Tiebreaker, guys. At least I know this stuff. (laughs) You're not disqualified. (laughs) Question number five What was the name of the Deep Space Nine space station before the Cardassians were forced to leave? Don't say that. Yeah, don't say anything yet. Keep going. You know it. I haven't given it. Go ahead. A, Empak Nor, B, Dukat Nor, C, Tarak Nor, D, Union Command Post Bajor. Mark. Clark! <laughs> Family hold back. <laughs> I'm saying it again. Come on, let Armand answer that one. I mean, Armand, do you know it? Sure, it's Empak Nor. Yes. Yeah. Oh, no. Mark. No. Mark. Tarak Nor? Tarak Nor. Shut the front door. You know you're oh, his Tarak Nor. We were this close. Oh. Yeah, I, I heard the first one. I went, oh, that, that's the it's one. Tarak Nor. Yeah, Tarak Nor. Oh. Well, oh, wow. is that 3 2? Wow, that's it. And now we're playing Stuck on an Island with Connor Trenier. Connor? So here's the deal you're on a deserted island and you are allowed your favorite author, their complete works. You are allowed. Your favorite dessert. You I get eat. Shakespeare. If you like, you get Shakespeare and you get the Bible. Yeah. Anyway, that, that's already, it's like being in Motel 6. Um, <laughs> and your dessert, like ice cream, you get all ice cream. Um, your music, all of their work, a particular one. And then the cuisine, French, Italian, yada, yada, yada. So what is your, who is your author? You. I was going to say that. <laughs> I was going to say that, actually. Um, it can't be you. <laughs> oh, I, 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 no, it, it very, actually, it's very simple. Uh, Hillary Mantel. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. yeah. Same vein, but, uh, and, uh, but she's, better. she's a but good better. read. Yeah. God bless her. Um, your music? Um, Grieg, I would say. Oh. Oh, sorry. Music? Yeah, Grieg. Oh, Greek music. Not Greek. Oh, Grieg. Composer Grieg. Oh, oh, Grieg. oh, oh. he's a Scandinavian uh, composer. I see. I uh, say his name again. Grieg. Grieg. Oh, Grieg. Grieg. I thought you said Greek. Greek. I did too. I did And uh, yeah, I was like, that's what you wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cuisine. I'm like Greek music. Uh, <laughs> genre. Cuisine. Uh, um, what's good for me? <laughs> what's opposed to what I eat, and what's good for me? Um, I, I, I would say Thai. 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 Oh, okay. First time you've heard that one. Yeah, I think so. And then your dessert. My wife's pear cake. Oh. Uh Well, we have to decide if she gets to go with you. 
Is it an upside down one? Or, uh, well, if she doesn't get to go with me, you're not going. I'm not going. <laughs> you can keep your Shakespeare and your Bible and your silly little island and your silly little island. <laughs> it's, a, it's only Catalina, anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're close by. Yeah. Yeah. They make a great lasagna over there. Those salty dogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's that's all she wrote. That's yeah, great. That's, thank you. Thank that's you. Lovely. Lovely. Thank lovely. you for so being. nice to have you on the show with us. Pleasure to be here. Thank, thank you. you. Thank it was you. great to catch up and, and, and dig in a little bit. And thank you for allowing uh, everyone to, uh, you know, to present this situation and, and to give people this opportunity to, to share time with you and me thank and everybody you, else. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We're having really a lot of fun. And, and, uh, we have. Uh, oh, yeah. We have a gift. Oh, we do. We do. I have a gift from my wife, actually. Yes. From me, from you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This is going directly to Kitty. Um, who, Are they real? Uh, oh, they're my real. God. They're quite beautiful. They're thank beautiful, you. Very beautiful. Uh, whoever is responsible, and I think I know, but whoever is responsible, thank you. Um, she deserves it. I, uh, my life would be exponentially worse if I wasn't married to Kitty Swink. Uh, and that's another lucky thing altogether. And uh, I'm just that's so beautiful. lucky to have her. Yeah. And, and she is uh, she's a force of nature. She's quite yeah, someone. She really this. is. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, thank you, Armin. Yeah. It's been an absolute thank pleasure, you. mate. Yeah. It's been, just been a thank joy you. hearing thank all you. your stories. Thank you. And, um, and some of them are true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, we have to the, no uh, basis. Have we got the contract? Is a contract. Is uh, a contract. <laughs> and that's all she wrote. Like. Subscribe and join us on Patreon.